and welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of Britain's brightest pop mag, smash it, and has a good nose through its pages with a guest. I'm Gavin Hogg, and he's only human, born to make mistakes. He's the Suzanne and the Joe to my Phil. Why, it's Cy Galloway. <laughs> How are you doing, Cy? <laughs> I'm all right, thank you. Jolly yeah, good. Co- one of my brothers uh, apparently was, because uh, he used to go to the uh, Crazy Daisy in Sheffield, and one of Joanne or Susan used to fancy him, so he reckoned. Oh, that's what he says. And pre-Human League, one of them was after him. Mm. Yeah, I bet he's dined out on that story for a while, hasn't he? Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, we'll, as, as I'm sure we'll discover as we go on, everybody from Sheffield's got a Human League story. So before we set the carousel spinning in motion, Sai, who's been forming an orderly queue at the carousel refreshment kiosk to buy us a frothy coffee? Well, uh, red or brown sauce, Dave, he says, thanks for some cracking entertainment and amazing guests, particularly Earthy Kit and Mind the Gap Band. Uh, Dave says, well, worth a coffee or two. I'm off to find Helen's book now. Uh, Yes, make sure you do. Fantastic. Thank you, Dave. Russ says, a small token of thanks for the joyful gem of a podcast from someone trapped in a faraway and depressing corner of the US. Be well, kind folks. And uh, we've had a couple of reviews in as well. Um, Bribal Fing, I think that's how you say it. I've only just started listening to these podcasts, so I've gone back to the first one and working my way through them. Smash It was my music Bible for about five years after buying the issue with the Funboy 3 on the cover from, I think, October 81. I love the way you guys have set this up where you can read the mag as you are listening to the podcast and the Spotify and video playlists are great as well. Cheers. Well, thank you, Bribal Things. I, I never know whether people take advantage of these playlists or not. And the kind of a research and memory aid for us more than anything. So it's nice that, that you're enjoying those. So that's good. And uh, Spike Cricket says, I'm really enjoying listening to you guys reliving the 80s. You make it fun. Because uh, the 80s weren't fun, were they? But we make it fun there. <laughs> and I love the nostalgia. It's a pleasure to listen to. So thanks for brightening up the journey to work. More 1984, though, please. The best year of the lot. Keep up the good work. And thank you. Oh, thank you Aww. very much for the lovely review. And, uh, yeah, if you want to leave us a review, do that on your podcast app of choice. And hopefully it'll filter through to us. Uh, it, it may take a little while, so apologies if we don't see it straight away. But we will pick it up eventually. Thank you. Yeah, many thanks for those. That's very kind. And if you want to support us, you too can do the same. It's very simple, and it can just be a one-off thing, or you can buy us as many coffees as you like, as often as you like. It's up to you. Just go to ko-fi.com forward slash giddypoppod. ko-fi.com forward slash giddypoppod. And chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. So, Sai, what is occurring in the land of the carousel? Well, thank you for asking. Um, as we sweep up the dry roasted peanuts left behind by Helen O'Hara, there's a murmur that we have some transatlantic guests on their way. They run a carnival of their own in the US of stateside and are visiting to try out some of the rides in Great Blightyville. Their cruise ship docks nearby and Mrs. Betjeman who takes the tickets at the monkey kiosk, is sent to collect them. They are very excited, and because the coconut is exclusively a British delicacy, they immediately head to the coconut shy. They've never seen one before, and there's lots of, oh golly, and gee whiz, to be heard. 
Mrs. Betjeman has never heard the like and mistakenly covers her ears thinking these ejaculations are cuss-based rather than amazement fueled. After 30 minutes at the shy and a fresh understanding of Kid Creole's raison d'etre, they spring over to the carousel. Mrs. Betjeman introduces them as the Podmament's record perm people or something, and we are nonplussed. But as soon as they start speaking, asking us questions about the early 80s Sheffield music scene, how long is a car ride in the UK, and whether either of us went to school with Dave Gahan, Christenberg, or Phil Oakey, we recognise them for the legends that they are. It's Sarah Permanence and Brian Permanence from the Permanent Record <laughs> podcast. Mrs. Betjeman, you may leave now. Welcome aboard, both of you. Please describe the horse that you will select to ride upon. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm here. I'm, I'm the Giddy Carousel, and I have chosen for my... Um, ride a seal, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. Please explain. Okay. <laughs> I know. I've, I've no. I've seen this is controversial. <laughs> we might have to build a new carousel. <laughs> yeah. I know that I have seen seals on carousels before, and I love seals and sea lions and and uh, marine mammals, and so that's what I'm going to ride. <laughs> we'll sort you one out. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Is it a conventional grey seal, or is it you know, a little more colourful than that? I mean, what what kind of seal are we talking here? Oh, I think it's it's like a greyish blue colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good good whiskers, I hope as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brian, what about you? <laughs> All right. Well, the last time I was on a carousel was probably over three decades ago. It was at Hershey Park, Pennsylvania, and I got on the carousel, and instantly upon stepping off of it, I lost all ability to walk in a straight line, and I ended up barely making it to a trash can where I regurgitated everything I'd eaten at the park. And I have never been on a, a carousel since that day. So if you guys are going to force me to get on one, I'm going to need something like a kangaroo, something that has a pouch. So I have, so if I lose my lunch again, I'll have a convenient place to, to do it in. Okay. <laughs> Even though I love the song by dead or alive, I'm not good at on things that go round and round like a record. Fair enough. I think we can have a word with Mrs. Betjeman. She might have like a, a big old empty bucket of crisps in a in a monkey kiosk or something. We can probably let you have it as you go around. That helps. I don't know. Well, thank you. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> well, this rather unconventional carousel will start spinning once upon the truthful answer is given to the ceremonial question. We've kind of already had a little bit about this, but almost. Have you ever been sick in a gum boot, Sarah? In a what? In a gum boot. Oh no! A, 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 a Wellington boot? I don't know what. What, what do you? A rubber, a rubber boot? Yeah, yeah, like a rain boot. A rain. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Go, no, no, I don't believe so. Fair, <laughs> Brian. Me neither. No, me neither. But if we gave you one on the carousel, you could actually go for it then, couldn't you? Oh yeah, in an instant. Yeah, <laughs> that would be no problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think those questions have been truthfully answered. Yeah, and, uh, well, I think we're off. I think I think we are off. One of them uh, answered in, in advance, in, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely detail. Thank you very much. <laughs> so the carousel has spun us back to smash it of August the 13th to the 26th, 1986, with Joanne and Susan from The League staring deep into the very souls of our being. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that. Thanks to the Like Punk Never Happened and Smash It's Remembered websites. 
you find links to the scans of this issue in the episode show notes, along with the Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of The Hits. You'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll post them on our Twitter and Facebook feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So, Brian and Sarah, we'll start with uh, you two. If you could take us back to August of 1986, we'd like to know, you know, where you were living, what you were doing, the music you were listening to. Just paint us a picture with the words from your mouths and your lips and your tongues as if they were magic brushes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Okay, let me start getting my brush ready. Um, (laughs) So uh, this period of time, August, the end of the middle to the end of August 1986, I was finishing up my summer vacation between my first and second year of high school. I was getting ready to be a sophomore, uh, 10th grade in high school, that's what they call it, and uh, had just finished up a really good summer, had gone to um, Florida in June, seen the beach for the first time, uh, the ocean for the first time, that was really nice, went to Disney World, uh, Epcot Center, and let's see, the music I was listening to at the time I had just gotten a boombox of my own in uh, Christmas 1985, so I was slowly amassing a collection of cassettes, but it was, it was very slow. Uh, that was about to change in the, the next year or so. But I had, I had APC, uh, How to Be a Zillionaire. I had Tears for Fears, um, Songs from the Big Chair. I know at this point I had Janet Jackson, Control, so that was very timely. But I was listening to mostly what was on the radio, because I didn't really have another source of music to listen to at that time. So, you know, whatever was on American Top 40 radio in our area at the time, which is somewhat similar, but not exactly the same as what you have here in this issue. A lot of things I was not familiar with reading through these pages. Were you, uh, were you reading many pop music magazines? or No, I really wasn't. I, I tried to think about, I had like one or two, and I don't even know what they were. There were some kind of random ones that I had. I think mostly at this time I was reading the magazine Young Miss. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I was. <laughs> so I was into the, oh, how to do your makeup and oh, what clothing is interesting and oh, how to talk to boys and all that kind of stuff. You know, I was it was a 15-year-old girl, so yeah. um, that kind of stuff interests me. I, you know, I had a passing interest in music, uh, but I wasn't really, really as much into it as I would be in the coming year, two years. And just getting more pocket money of my own to be able to, to buy cassettes and things. I was babysitting that summer. I also um, babysat a boy right down the street from me during the day while his parents were at work, so... The good thing about that was they had MTV. I didn't have MTV at home. So I got to see a lot of videos um, during that summer. And some of them I remember um, when we will talk about them today. And I remember seeing them at that house. And, you know, so so it it actually worked out really well. Brian, what what about you? All right. I'm actually pretty much the same age as Sarah. We went to the same high school. So everything she said in terms of schooling and, and what age that she was. That's the same for me. So I'll skip through that. The most important thing, you guys all have diaries and journals from this era that you're able to (laughs) tap into to remember what you were doing. I don't really have that, but I do have this, you know, 
pop synth pop duos were taking the world by storm pet shop boys erasure and i was sitting in a small town in pennsylvania united states i saw this happening so of course i had no choice but to form a synth pop duo called coming of the walk <laughs> and here's our second album which came out in 1986 oddly enough it's called music from the magical walk so <laughs> at this period in time i was concentrating on taking over the world with my own style of synth pop which was all based on Casio keyboards that I recorded with my friend Jason. And uh, we went on to release four amazing cassettes <laughs> of, <laughs> of uh, Casio goodness. But unfortunately, we never reached those heights, you know, along with Erasure and Pet Shop Boys and all those great bands that we had aspired to be like. Sometimes things are, you know, real kind of slow burn as you think about the career of the Velvet Underground. You know, at the time, no one True. was listening. And now, decades later people look back and see them as very influential. And I think it's the same for your synth pop stylings. I think in about 20 years, your time will come. <laughs> you may be right. <laughs> you may be right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you still have these cassettes. I do. This is, I have them on cassette, but I did transfer them over to CD. Yeah. And uh, well, this is the uh, 2013 collector's edition, <laughs> digitally remastered um, CD with bonus tracks. <laughs> the bonus track on this one is of course a cover of Depeche Mode's Boys Say Go. I'd, lo I'd love to drop one of these tracks into this conversation on the podcast. Oh, no, you wouldn't. Just give the world a little taste of what they missed out Absolutely. on in 1986. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we, we, need, we need to hear this. We need to hear this. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure you get something in your email. Brian, were you reading any pop magazines at this time yourself? Uh, I was. The, the, the only problem is I, I spent almost all of my money on comic books. So I didn't have money to spend to, to buy the pop magazines, pop music magazines. But I would always make sure if my mom was going to the grocery store, she was running errands to the mall, I would go along and then I would camp out in the magazine section of the bookstore or the, or the grocery store. And just as an annoying little kid, sort of sit there on the floor and read them. So we didn't have smash hits here in the U.S. We had a magazine that was very, very similar called Star Hits. And I'm not really sure exactly if it was the same people or reprints of other articles. You're nodding your head yes. Um, so I, of course, liked that magazine and rarely would actually buy a copy, even though I tried to read all of them. And, of course, I would always read the um, Billboard singles charts. I would uh, Billboard always near the end had a section uh, reviewing all the current singles that were just released that week. So I tried to keep up with that. And... We had a magazine called Spin Magazine, which was the same size and format as Rolling Stone, but they talked about cooler music. So I would always read the reviews and the interviews with bands in that. So I tried to keep up with all my magazines. Just unfortunately, don't really have any uh, because I didn't buy too many. I had to keep up with Batman and Spider-Man. So were either of you aware of Smash It's at all at this time? I was not. I I was very sheltered and uh, kind of clueless <laughs> in a lot of ways, so I did not know about it. I knew about Smash Hits because, as you can see, I don't have the cover, but I have this issue right here in front of me. I actually own this issue. It was sent to me by my cousin 
for a reason that we can go into when we get oh, to it. Ooh. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> Gavin, what about what about you? August 86. Well, I can I can tell you uh, cuz we were talking about diaries and I've got I've got my little diary which covers this mm-hmm. period. Um so I just finished my final year at secondary school and done my O levels, which makes me sound really old cuz that was kind of the last year really I think that we had uh, O levels in the UK. So on, uh, I just I won't read the whole fortnight, but I'll, I'll just give you a few sneaky highlights. <laughs> in fact, the word highlight is very apt here because on August the twelfth, my diary entry says had hair highlighted, looks well ace in my humble opinion. <laughs> Lost ten pounds, but Mum found it again. I don't know what happened there. But... <laughs> August the fourteenth, went to Sully Hole, met Brian, bought left of centre Suzanne Vega seven inch. Then I went on holiday to uh, to Bridgewater uh, down in Somerset with my uh, two cousins. One's like nine months older than me, one's nine months younger than me. And we went with my nan and stayed in a caravan on a Holly Marine caravan park. Uh, bought Bedsitter by Soft Cell French Import, brackets, in a charity shop. So it must have been let out into the Chazers. And even back then I was hitting the charity shops. <laughs> the following day on the 17th, played crazy golf and lost both times. <laughs> Met Selena and Mandy, pervs ahoy. <laughs> Not a bit of smash hits coming in there. Yep. <laughs> the, the next bit is great. I've put, doing okay on the girl front. One spoke to me, exclamation mark. <laughs> that, that was me doing well with girls, like actually getting one to speak to me. Yeah, I can relate. A few, few days later on the 20th, few rock and roll. Disco tonight was crazy apeshit brilliant. There is a... <laughs> <laughs> there is a nice girl with a beautiful bum who I fancy a lot. <laughs> I do apologise. And uh, and then on the 24th, uh, I got home from Bridgewater, got home and opened O-level results, and I bloody well got seven. Phew, I couldn't believe it either. So there we go. There's a little, little snapshot into my world of buying cheap seven inches and um, trying to speak to girls. With nice bums. <laughs> and a lot of smash its language yeah my, my diary of that time was is similar just obvious with with boys instead you're like oh well he looked at me today or oh you know he smiled at me today and things like that yeah it's very very quaint <laughs> it is isn't it and then you look back years later and you, you don't even remember who these people are do you? <laughs> but, but at the time it seems so important oh yeah what about yourself, Mr. Sy? Well, obviously, it was the, the six-week holidays. And I remember it not being the sunniest of summers uh, in Sheffield in 1986. I, I do remember being stuck inside an awful lot, kind of feeling listless. You know, I just, uh, just didn't know what to do with myself. Mm. Um, this issue is a month away from my 13th birthday, a few weeks away from me starting secondary school. because so I went to a, a middle school for my junior school, which meant that we started secondary school a year later. So, uh, yeah, I started in, in the second year. So, yeah, that, that was a few weeks away. So it was a year of transition and big change. And also that August on our local ITV channel. So ITV is our commercial TV network, and we, we had regional stations up and down the country. My local one was Yorkshire TV, YTV, obviously. And they decided that summer to go 24 hours, broadcast for 24 hours. And to do that, they were simulcasting something called Music Box. I don't know if you got this, Gavin, Central TV? Yeah, I was in uh, Central TV area, yeah, in the Midlands. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like the European equivalent of MTV. There was this satellite cable channel 
and they took the feed. My TV station took the feed from midnight until five a.m. And I decided that I was I was going to watch it every night, um, but I, I couldn't stay up until five a.m. So I found <laughs> I found the longest VHS tape that we got in the house, a four hour tape. So what I would do is I would stay up and watch it for an hour. And then I would set the tape recording and then come down the next morning or whatever it was that I got up and go through the tape just to see if they played any David Bowie. And (laughs) and in that period, before going back to school, so that, that kind of month or so, the only instance of them playing a David Bowie video was the Blue Jean video, which I'd already got on VHS. I got the Jazzing for Blue Jean full length thing. So right immensely disappointed it was mostly songs that were in the charts at that time so it's a lot of the songs that are in this this issue and you know, on the video playlist as well so sarah you know very similar to to your experience with um mtv so it's stuff like bruce hornsby michael mcdonald janet jackson madonna five star remember lionel rich's dancing on the ceiling being on heavy rotation and mm. and daryl hall's dream time as well got a lot of play but it's just Disappointed because there wasn't enough Bowie. Um, And I think that disappointment feeds into, for me, 1986 being the worst year in pop music of the 1980s. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) It's just, I I think of, when I said that was a bit listless uh, that summer, that's how I felt all year. And pop music, there was just something missing. There There was an emptiness. There was a void where pop music should have a heart, but in this void were bands like Belui's Sum and Cutting Crew and just bands that I hated. <laughs> and, <laughs> but the, there was also this seriousness, this heaviness that, was, that crept in uh, in 1986, I think it's possibly the the Live Aid effect. Maybe um, mm-hmm. you know, looking back now, maybe pop music or, or bands felt that they should have some sort of conscience and that they should be doing something something meaningful, man, to change the world. But it meant that um, you know a lot of dull and worthy music kind of crept in, uh, you know, in this post Live Aid world that we lived in. I think Latin Quarter. Uh, were a, a good example of that, or a bad example, if, if you ask me. They had a, a song called Radio Africa. And said, oh, it's just like being beaten round the head with the same message over and over. And uh, disappointing follow-ups from previously great bands. You know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood's second album. Uh, Culture Club, uh, the, the Human League, they're all faltering. You know, what, what, what was going on? Um, and I think looking at the charts, I've been looking through and looking at the number ones from that year. And there so many ballads and middle-of-the-road mush that was in the charts. So it, it was like the grown-ups had started buying records again and, and spoiling the charts. You know, the pop music wasn't there. And we were getting, some, well, some of the worst offenders were in, actually in the top 10 uh, when this very issue came out. So you got at number one, Christy Berg, Lady in Red. You've got Boris Gardner, I Want to Wake Up With You, the song that replaced Christy Berg at number one. It Bikes, Calling All the Heroes, a song that I hated then and hate with <laughs> just as much passion now. And <laughs> there were lots of, lots of cover versions. It was like they were running out of things to put out. So cover versions and reissues and remixes. You've got Doctor and the Medics doing Spirit in the Sky, The Real Thing and Tavares putting out remixes of their mid-70s hits and Frank Sinatra and Lulu back in the charts with just straight-ahead reissues of, of their old things. And then lots of soundtrack stuff, Karate Kid 2 and Top Gun. I remember Kenny Loggins, uh, was it Danger Zone from Top mm-hmm. Gun? I remember that being on Music Box constantly and 
didn't like that song either, I tell you. Terrible. Yeah. So also in the UK, you guys will have been spared this, but there were lots of TV-related songs. We've got um, I mean, Anita Dobson's in this issue with the <laughs> the, uh, the vocal theme from, from EastEnders. We've got Sue Pollard. Cast of Grange Hill and the Howard's Way theme all getting in the chart. So for me, it, it was a bad year to be into pop music, which is probably why I spent a good chunk of it um, listening to The Cure Standing on a Beach, uh, the singles compilation, the cassette version, which I borrowed from my local library. And at the beginning of the year, my dad had got a Marantz uh, twin tape deck, which I thought was just mind-blowing. So I was borrowing all these tapes from the library, and that, that was one of the tapes that I uh, borrowed and, and copied and, and, and listened to endlessly. I, I know, I know it's not all bad, but that's just my overriding memory, which is so dull, 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 dull. <laughs> <laughs> you, you had to get, if you're going to get Staring at the Sea, you had to get the cassette, because at least here in the U.S., you had all the B-sides on the second side of the mm. tape. It was like a crazy long cassette. Yeah. That was great. It was brilliant. Yeah. So I think The Cure, Suzanne Vega, two of the, the artists that I listened to most that year. And also David Bowie, of course. And I had a, a big Beatles kick that year, rearranging all my favorite songs onto C90s. I was making endless C90s of just the the, mu- the, the records that were around the house. <laughs> so I say, are you okay to... Um look through this magazine or shall I just say thanks for joining us on the Giddy Carousel Apart we'll be back in two months and we'll just I, I just feel like you're gonna have a nervous breakdown if we delve too much into this magazine I have, be okay, I have so. been waiting for us to do 1986 oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just want to just be sharpening my knives oh, no. <laughs> well your time has come Sai. So, without any further ado, let's dive into the issue in question. Take a look on the cover. We've got the return of the Human League. We've just got Sue and Joe. Some very gelled hair there. You can almost smell the uh, Shockwaves Weller gel on that. I think that's a fire hazard, probably. (laughs) There's a lot of hair product going on in this whole issue. (laughs) Well, yeah. In fact, in 1986 in general, there's a lot of hair product. But it really sets its stall out on the cover there in terms of hair product, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, big red lippy, big gold hoops in the ears, blow-dried hair, beauty spots and blusher. Um, rather confusingly, that we've got a purple background and then they've chosen to put purple writing of all the bands and the artists featured. So where it's not in front of uh, Joe and Sue, it's a little bit hard to read at times. But uh, we've got Paul McCartney, The Smiths, Zig Zig Sputnik, Prince, Tina Turner... The Spans, Banana Armor, Doctor and the Medics, Katrina and the Waves, Janet Jackson, Killing Joke, and A Horse, all listed on the front cover. And turning over to the contents page, we've got all the people that we've just mentioned. Uh, it also mentions Phil Fearon is uh, interviewed, pages 58 and 59. In terms of songs that are covered, because obviously we've got the lyrics in here, we've got Bruce Hornsby in the range, The Way It Is, Anita Dobson, Anyone Can Fall in Love. Sai's favourite tune. Human League with Human. Shout by Lulu. Daryl Hall's Dreamtime. Typical Male by Tina Turner. Phil Theron's I Can Prove It. When I Think of You, Janet Jackson. I Want to Wake Up with You by Boris Gardner. Another favourite of Sai's. <laughs> Girls and Boys by Prince. The Mighty Mode with A Question of Time. Aussie! <laughs> the Ultimate Sin. And the real thing, can you feel the force? And as uh, Brian has already mentioned, we've got 
Pete Burns as well from Dead or Alive. It says he's back, back, back after nearly a year's break, during which time he's moved to London with his wife Lynn, thrown away that silly eye patch and had a jolly good rest. Pete Burns has a new single out with his group Dead or Alive at the beginning of next month, and it's called Brand New Lover. Avanti! And there's a great pic of Pete. Um, I mean, that's... Even all these years later, that's a very, very strong look. And if you went to do your weekly shop down at Morrison's, you'd still be turning heads there, wouldn't you? Definitely. I mean, it's all these various shades of green uh, with what looks like, a, well, I guess, a cameo-inspired codpiece kind of thing going on. Are they just kind of leather pants? I'm not quite sure. Leather underpants. I think it's a, a codpiece. It's, um, it's very Judas Priest, that, isn't it? Yeah. But those, I mean, are they, are they, is it tights he's wearing? Is it leggings? I'm, I'm not quite sure. I think they're leggings. But they're, they're all covered in letters. And, and if you notice, they're all back to front. Mm-hmm. So I, I flipped it round. And you can actually make out some of the words. And it looks like it's been written on with a chunky marker or, or some, something like that. So some of the words or phrases that I managed to pick out were call to talk and then a bit of, bit of a word, CK, on, and then something's missing then, hey. And it kind of looks like the sort of graffiti that you get on a public toilet wall. And if that's, <laughs> if that's what it is... <laughs> then, then it's no wonder that the image is being reversed. I mean, you can kind of fill in the blanks yourself so, uh, <laughs> of some of the sentences that were starting to form when I, when I flipped the image. <laughs> and, and yet the wording on the codpiece is not reversed. And, no. And you can see that if you, if you zoom in on your tablet, you can read that it says triumph. And isn't that an interesting word to put right there? <laughs> it's crazy because yeah. I think for many, many years, I thought it said thumper. I don't know why I thought that. I, with my reading glasses on, and if I hold it close, you know, it clearly does say Triumph, but for some reason, I always I always thought that. I, I don't know if that's a, a brand of motorcycles. I almost think it is. But yes, I'm, I'm it is. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Which feeds Sorry. into the Judas Priest kind of thing as well. Yeah. 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 But I still think it's funny to, to, to put something there that says Triumph. <laughs> <laughs> it is a Triumph. Leave it to Pete. In which case, the photo hasn't been flipped. He's been made to put those tights on inside out. Right. Oh, right, right. That would make more sense, actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just too shocking for smash it. To this day, Pete Burns is still one of my favorite musicians slash personalities. He's not the world's greatest musician. Uh, I know he's more of an entertainer, but I was super excited last year when Fan the Flame Part 2 came out. I got that the day it was released, and uh, I would still buy in in charity shops if I come across a 12-inch remix that I don't have. Yeah. I snap it up right away. I have a a big pile of Dead or Alive 12-inch singles, so I was... Always very excited to see Pete. It's actually the cover of my magazine since I lost the cover. Um, but I always, you know, stories about Pete Burns became few and far between after like 1987, maybe. So anytime I can get it, some Pete Burns exposure, I'm excited. The question we need to ask, Brian, is uh, as you were a big Dead or Alive fan, would you ever have uh, copied the man's sartorial style there? Well, it's funny you ask that because in the very first video that Coming in the Walk released is for our. Our song, Running With The Passion. Oh, I remember that one. I, I <laughs> yeah. donned an eye patch for that video, basically because Pete Burns wore one and you spin me around. <laughs> wow, that's going above and beyond. Uh-huh. Good work. Well done. But yeah, that's a great look. I mean, we, we've talked about his tights and uh, his codpiece going on, but also the jacket. It's got like a strange kind of fringy thing, and it looks like mm-hmm. it's made of felt. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's quite voluminous, isn't it? 86 was definitely the era of big coats. Yeah, as we will discuss. Yeah, (laughs) we will discuss. We will, yes. 
<laughs> Do I hear cutting crew in the distance? Uh, there's, there's actually a really, really gigantic jacket on the very next page when we turn it, if you recall. Let's do that now, shall we? Sai, do you want to take us through bits? Yeah, so bits. I mean, it's very chaotic and, and borderline psychedelic here. And, and for the most part, it's far too fo- small a font for me to be able to read. <laughs> it's really tiny. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the amount of stuff going on is, is quite overwhelming. But what you notice straight away is that it's, it's very photo heavy. And I know that sounds like a silly thing to say for a magazine, but a lot of what's written is actually related to the photos in some way. So it's like this, uh, this is almost interaction between the, the text and, and the visuals. And, and this is something that I think continues throughout the issue and that the contents are very very visual and, and photo heavy. So, yeah, on, on this first page, uh, well, I've got some uh, big hair with Nick Cave, uh, the smiley culture, uh, early adopter of the hoodie there. Lulu with her various uh, hairstyles and styles through the ages, uh, the Ramones and, and the real thing. So where's, where, where's the big jacket? Where are you looking, Brian? Over on the left, you can win a preposterously big jacket. There's, it looks to me like it's two guys from UB40. They, UB bloody 40. We made it all the way to page four before UB40 came up. Um, but it looks like two of them are wearing one jacket. And then now the magazine is trying to give it away because it's far too big for anyone to wear, they say. Yeah, the Campbell brothers have stretched it. It's no good to anyone now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, boys. So that was me thinking there was no UB bloody 40 in this one. <laughs> oh, ha. There's always UB 40. Uh, turning the page, uh, we get a, a lovely introduction to Zodiac Mind Warp. <laughs> and the lovely action, of course. Um, and so there's a, a photo of them in all their rock finery. Leather jackets and no shirts, chains going on, and some sort of helmets. I'm not quite sure what's going on, really. Uh, it says, this lot, Bits is pleased to tell you, our Zodiac mind warp and the love reaction from left to right. Cobalt Stargazer on Sleaze Grinder. Bits thinks he means guitar. Kid Chaos on Sonic Rumble Hammer. Bass, Bits suspects. <laughs> Zodiac Mind Warp himself, the singer, and Slam Thunderhide, the drummer. They released an exceptionally funny but rather filthy single last year called Wild Child, which everyone ignored, and now they've released an exceptionally funny but rather filthy mini-LP called High Priest of Love, and everyone seems to be going potty about them. Mainly, it must be said, because of their so-called lyrics. Things like, you talk too much, button your lip, just take a trip behind my zip. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more sexy than Jesus Christ. And uh, even naughtier things, which Zodiac shouts while the rest of the band play lots of noisy, grating music that sounds suspiciously like heavy metal. They used to wear big swastikas all over their jackets, but now they only wear small ones. (laughs) Oh, that's all right then. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) And that... And their German World War II helmets are only imitation. And they used to boast about the helmet their roadie, Gunnar Funk, got from a dead Argentine in the Falklands. But now, thankfully, they've decided not to be quite so tasteless. Well. (laughs) Only just. (laughs) Only just, yeah. But who are they? Well, Cobalt is short-sighted and has a philosophy degree. Kid is Welsh. Slam is from Vancouver and used to be a grave digger and a garbage man. And Zodiac whose real name is Mark Manning, was born in Leeds and he used to be a cartoonist and a designer for a pop magazine called Flexipop. Fancy that, the clot. Or 
We've descended to Earth in a broken Cadillac drawn by swans, as Mr. Mindwarp might put it, and indeed does on his record sleeves. I remember going to town with some mates, uh, record shopping, and one of them buying the Zodiac Mindwarp High Priest of Love album as a specific order for his older brother. I remember sat reading the, the, uh, the he's got sleeve notes. I remember sat reading the sleeve notes on the bus home or just rolling about laughing because we couldn't <laughs> believe how, you know, how kind of ridiculous and, and, and audacious it was. So happy memories of, uh, <laughs> of Zodiac Mindwarp there. I got so confused when I started reading about them because I didn't know anything about them. I did a little research and I found out that there's someone in the band whose real name is Dave Rimmer. And I thought, wait, not Dave Rimmer from Smash Hit. <laughs> and it was not. It was it was someone else who actually ended up being a, a bass player in Uriah Heep. Oh. So but yeah, that was really funny that they, they have someone named Dave Rimmer in their band. I mean talking of strange uh, English acts that you may not have heard of, are you guys familiar with the phenomenon that is Frank Sidebottom? <laughs> no. 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 Not, not until you sent us the playlist. <laughs> nope, that was a new one for both of us. My oh my. Yeah, it's a hard one to explain. So there's a, there's a little competition in Smash It's to win a Frank Sidebottom plaster figurine, but it says, but it's not much good. In fact, one of the hands fell off when we took it out of the box. So you can have it. And there's four more slightly the same, which you can have as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you can win uh, one of these figurines where the hand keeps falling off and some uh, of Frank's sci-fi EP 12 inches. And there's also a picture disc as well. Um, yeah, trying to explain uh, Frank Sidebottom to uh, anyone who wasn't around at the time is quite tricky. But he was basically, he, he was a guy called Chris Seavey who had been in a kind of uh, new wave band called The Freshers from Manchester. And then he had this idea of putting a big paper mache head on having a peg on his nose and then singing. He'd do kind of cover versions of songs, but he'd make them all about his own kind of universe. He came from a, a place in Manchester called Timperley. So most of his songs would reference Timperley in some way. There were a few original songs, but uh, he was like a big Beatles fan and a big Bowie fan. And he just he just liked all pop music, really. And he just became like a an amazing kind of cult figure for, I don't know, probably like... 15, 20 years, didn't he, from like mid-80s. And he died around, I want to say maybe 2010, something like that. Yeah, it was in, in the in the 2000s, yeah. But, I mean, he, he was he was kind of everywhere at one point. He'd be on kids' TV and he'd be on music shows like, you know, the, the Whistle Test and things like that. And he'd, he'd just kind of crop up in all sorts of unusual places. <laughs> yeah. And it was, but it was such a strange act as well because nothing was ever explained. And it was... It was funny, but it wasn't kind of done for laughs, if you know what I mean as well. It wasn't kind of it, – it was just odd mm-hmm. and, yeah. and funny because of that. But, um, yeah, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> really, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. No. I, I, I love Frank. <laughs> I was a big fan. Did, did you enjoy the version of Life on Mars? Uh... Did it bring a smile to your face? No. No. no, okay. It, it just got worse as it went on. It was only 43 seconds long. And, and it somehow it managed to get worse in, in that short time. <laughs> By the time it was over, I thought, oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. Uh, well, over the page, some more familiar faces. They're back, back, back. Frankie goes to Hollywood, finally get around to releasing their first new record for a year and a half on August the 25th. It's called Rage Hard. 
The Rocky are one of the two songs they played at the recent Montreux Pop Festival and has a song called Don't Lose What's Left of Your Little Mind on the B-side. The 12-inch has a third track written by someone else, though they won't say who yet. Hmm. Frank Sidebottom? (laughs) Christy Burr? One of Amazulu? Lulu? That's enough guesses. Thank you, Bits. Uh, that's a little note from the head there. And it was. Would anybody like to uh, offer up what that other track was? Before you reveal the answer, let me just say that yeah. I was obsessed as a young man trying to find out the answer to this question. I was so curious as to what that could be. But we were still years away from the internet, so I couldn't Google it. And I never saw the 12-inch for Rage Hard in my travels. So I went many, many decades without ever knowing the answer to this. And the answer is? Oh, the answer is... David Bowie, it was a, a remake of Suffragette City, I believe. Indeed it was, yeah. Which, had I known at the time, I would have gone out and bought it. Now, I did end up with it eventually, but... <laughs> How is their version? I haven't listened to it yet. It's okay. I mean, if if um, you know you like their version of T-Rex's Get It On, then it's very much in that, that kind of vein. Not as good as their version of um, Bruce's Born to Run. But it has to be better than Frank Sidebottom's version of Life on Mars. <laughs> That's fighting talk, that. <laughs> oh, wow. I remember back then, uh, Friday nights, I would often stay up sort of like you did, side till the, the wee hours of the morning watching like Friday night videos and USA Night Flight, which were all shows that showed music videos here in the US. And somewhere along the line, one, one of the, the weeks in this year, I did see that pop festival that they mentioned here uh, that where they performed the Rocky, you know, the Rocky or the two songs. And it was so ridiculous at the end because they trashed their, their set. They like... They're smashing the drums and they're smashing the guitars, but the music keeps playing. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was it was obvious they were all lip syncing at this festival anyway, but they made sure there was no question of that. <laughs> then at the uh, bottom right-hand corner, we get um, Index to the Bits Book of Life, Volume 1, uh, which has been a cut-out and keep <laughs> collection. I'm just looking down at the, uh, at the contents. <laughs> And I think I'm going to have to go back and, and revisit some of these. Yeah, <laughs> In alphabetical order, acupuncture, aphids in spinach, athlete's foot, Batman, bloke eating a gramophone record, boomerang elbow, bubblegum, Captain Scarlet, chess playing guppy, a fish, <laughs> cloche de halley, a thing, cocoa pops, cough, crumb, George, inventor of the potato crisp, I don't know if that's true or not. Death. <laughs> Dimos. Find it like a raisin. Dickens. Charles. Disco death beat. A novel. Draft syndrome. A disease. Treble. Cornelius. Inventor of the submarine. Electric chair. Elephantitis. <laughs> M. Jam. Greg. Bloke with a chimp. With a hat. <laughs> Fencing elbow. Another disease. Frump, frump, an elephant. <laughs> Gastric oh. brooding frog. Goldfish, Kellogg's James Harvey, cornflake pioneer. Knock your block off. Lassie meets the Three Musketeers, non-existent film. <laughs> Love is an uphill thing, book by Jimmy Savile. Uh, McDonald Corporation, McDonald Ronald. Neptune, a planet. Nessia, Charles, bloke who invented hair. <laughs> person who invented the hot water bottle plastic robot a potato prawn cocktail crisp presley elvis 
Ramones, the, with a chimp. <laughs> rodent, <laughs> rodent pellets. <laughs> 90, Joe, a stupid puppet. Rolling Stones, a group. Samoid husky, a dog in space. Space chimp, chimp in space. <laughs> the Spotniks, a group. Star Trek, Stingray, Town of the Tiger, Water Bottle, Hot, The. <laughs> just brilliant. The, the, the mind boggles. <laughs> it really does. <sighs> so many chips to read about. You know what made me giggle? To the right of the, the index or the table of contents, you get like an actual installment of the book, I guess, and it says the history of people going underwater. And the sentence, undersea exploration was a tricky business due to the lack of anything to breathe, i.e. air. Crack me up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to leave bits there. We'll uh, skip past an advert for Now That's Why We Call Music 7 with 32 top chart hits. And we alight on Doctor and the Medics with their least favourite things. What does the Doctor of Doctor and the Medics infamy truly loathe and despise? I thought it was going to be really difficult thinking of things that I really hated, he tells William Shaw. But last night I had a look around my flat and I realised that I hated almost everything in it. <laughs> that must be quite distressing, like, living in a place where you hate almost everything. So, uh, it's yeah, it's a fun little feature on uh, The Good Doctor from the band who were uh, riding high with Spirit in the Sky. Nothing at all to do with the music. Uh, and as the article suggests, he chooses some of his least favourite things uh, all from uh, around him in his flat. He chooses, amongst other things, Lou Reed's Metal Machine Music, possibly the most terrible record of all time, he says. A bottle of his girlfriend's dad's homemade wine, <laughs> bottled on the 5th of July 1981 and getting worse by the minute. <laughs> and a strap-on elephant trunk, which he says resembles some sexual aid for a 55-year-old businessman. <laughs> amongst other things as well, he also chooses one of his bandmates, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> he chooses Richard Searle of the Medics, and there's a little picture of Richard in there. He says, I think it's true to say, without being nasty to Richard, that everyone who's met him has come away thinking that he's one of the most miserable people on the planet. Richard is a horrible person, and I think he'll agree with what I've just said as well. <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up to see when Richard actually left uh, Doctor and the Medics, and he was in for a few more years. He didn't leave, I think, until 1990, so uh, I'm guessing it was fairly tongue-in-cheek. I did have to agree with him on that box of washing powder. <laughs> the filetti <laughs> washing powder. And he, he says, uh, but look at the picture on the packs. The baby's deformed. <laughs> in, fact, <laughs> in fact, every time we go down to the laundrette, the packet draws comments from all the old ladies. Look at that baby. I wouldn't use a packet with that baby on the front. <laughs> I, I tend to agree. There's something wrong there. That child looks distressed. It's a really weird image, isn't it? For you think like the, the marketing department as they're putting this all together and they think of all the photographs that they probably could have had to use and they choose that one. It's really horrible. It, it is. You <laughs> I think don't know why they happy, would Happy, smiling baby and this one is kind of just dumbfounded, I think, at its fate. I mean, it looks drunk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that... They're holding it up as if it can't stand on its own, yeah. so sure. <laughs> yeah, it just looks very confused, uh, unable to stand on its own. And not only is the picture very odd, the whole box is red and pink and no other color. There's a, st a small strip of yellow. And like even their, their skin colors are very, very bright pinkish that sort of blends in with that background. It just looks very unattractive. That might be why I don't think they're around anymore. I don't remember ever seeing <laughs> Filetti, do you, Si? No, I've got no recollection of Filetti. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. 
Brian, is there anything that uh, that you would pick out as being a particularly horrible thing there? All right. Well, it was very difficult for me to get this article in my head as something that can be enjoyed because as a youth, I didn't understand that this was sort of tongue-in-cheek and was supposed to be funny. So I read this and I had no interest in this band because he just complains about everything. It's so <laughs> negative. And, it's, and I was like, who would even want to hang out with this guy? And I mean, I loved Boy George. I love Pete Burns. So if I see someone dressed like this, sort of like a gender bender, I'm going to be interested right away. But he totally turned me off as a person. And that's how it was for years. I, I never listened to their songs or investigated them, which wasn't difficult to do because here in the U.S., Spirit in the Sky peaked at like number 69. It wasn't a big hit or anything. So when I came back to this, I was like, oh, I forgot about this article. I hate it. But I realized as a grown-up that this is supposed to be entertaining and, and funny. And there were parts that, that I did laugh at. The thing that I liked the most is over on the left page, the thing-a-ding-dings, yeah. <laughs> this weird children's toy. I, I love the fact that he says, it's one of the most stupid things I've ever seen. Quote, change the parts to create hundreds of ringing action toys, hours of creative fun. It gave me about 20 minutes. It's so boring. He's a grown man, and somehow this this, <laughs> grown, this grown adult somehow got 20 minutes of fun out of that toy. <laughs> so, any, anyone else would get 20 seconds, but kudos to him. He, he enjoyed it for almost half an hour, which is great. <laughs> oh, and I agree with him about um, fish soups. I don't like fish soups. <laughs> One of the things that I would really agree with him on here is these realistic baby dolls as well, which are really quite revolting. <laughs> They've got uh, wrinkly skin on them. And he says, look at the umbilical cords. The thing I hate most about them is that I used to have these dreams where all these humanoid things used to crawl out from under my bed and make squeaking noises. And they were identical to these. Christian gave them to me so I'd have nightmares because he thinks would be far more successful if I went completely off my rocker. <laughs> Feel them. Rubber. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> there is something really quite spooky about them and that, like, little folds in their skin and, yeah. 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 Quite unpleasant. I, th I think it's quite a fun article. I know, Brian, you were saying at the time you didn't kind of realise the, the humour behind it. But, right. But I think it's quite nice because it's... He becomes quite a cartoon character. And, and I know, Sai, you were talking earlier on about the seriousness of a lot of the music around this time. Mm. But it kind of occurred to me reading this issue that there were also a few of these kind of cartoony bands around, like Doctrine and the Medics, Zodiac Mind Warp, who we've talked about, Zig Zig Sputnik, who are quite a recurring theme in this issue. So there were some bands that would try to have a bit of fun and not be as serious. And, you know, I've, I've got a little personal beef with, uh, with Doctor. Well, my wife has. She tweeted about probably about four or five years ago lynn said something about uh she mentioned doctor and the medics and called them a one-hit wonder in a tweet not in a nasty way and didn't at them in it or anything like that but he the doctor had seen it somehow searched for it or something and replied and said for your information we're not a one-hit wonder we sold out some festival recently and we had another record in the charts that I don't know whatever else got in the charts to number 35 or something. But yeah. she was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> so we might well be listening to this podcast. So uh, we probably shouldn't say anything else horrible about him. We turn the page and we, we are in the presence of actual pop royalty. Fab Macca Wacky Thumbs Aloft at Your Service, an interview by Tom Hibbert. Uh, it's Paul McCartney, uh, obviously. Uh, it says, Paul McCartney bounds into the room looking very cheery and chipper indeed. That's what you call me at Smash It's, isn't it? Fab Macca Wacky Thumbs Aloft. Love it. You've got to laugh. Goodness. 
beaming and looking quite ridiculously trim and young for his 40-plus years. McCartney is almost unnerving in his geniality. The chirpy cove you see on TV is, is exactly the same geezer you get in an interview, and probably in real life too. And once he started talking, there's no stopping him. Ask a question, any question, and he'll rattle off an answer that goes on for several centuries <laughs> and stops off in peculiar places for no particular reason whatsoever. In other words, Paul McCartney is a chatterbox and a thoroughly nice bloke. In other words, he really is Fab Macca Wacky Thumbs Aloft of legend. So let us just let him ramble on about whatever takes his fancy, such as hairdressers. And this is the uh, so the first thing <laughs> he talks about. And it takes quite a while to get there. But he says, um, I want my children to have values and common sense. I wouldn't ban them from buying Zig Zig Sputnik records. Anyway, they've got more sense. They like dire straits, simple minds, people like that. I've been waiting for them to try and shock me and, and rebel and go punk, but instead they go to Dire Straits concerts. My oldest daughter Heather was a punk, but that was when punk was just coming in with the Sex Pistols and Pretty Vacant and all that, and it was more exciting then. Heather was very taken by all that, and she was a pretty good punk, actually. She had this gorgeous long blonde hair, and she wanted a quarter-inch crew. That was pretty shocking for parents. But the joke was, we ended up cutting it for her because she had an appointment with a hairdresser to do it on a Sunday. But of course, like hairdressers will, he stood her up, which was a crushing blow. You know how those guys can wield power. Sure, I'll do your hair, little girly. And they stand him up. So we said, all right, calm down, we'll do it. And off it came. I just don't understand. No, that's a really weird story. I read that and I was like, is that a thing of hairdressers not turning up for appointment? I, obviously in Paul McCartney's world it is, but yeah. not for anyone else. And really, he should, he should be more concerned about his kids liking Dire Straits than, than Zizek Sputnik. Yeah. Well, come on. Exactly. That, that's the greater crime in yeah. my book. Indeed. I always assumed that because you, you heard stories about like that that Paul didn't remember all the tracks, recording all the songs that are on Press to Play at, at the time because he was he was enjoying the white powder so often in the eighty in the mid eighties. I always sort of assumed that his energy and the fact that he comes bounding into this room is sort of a, a chemical effect, <laughs> <laughs> and that that's where trains of thought like that come from. Oh, that's a good take on it, actually. Yeah, uh, that makes more sense. It could be. Yeah, you're more associating with the. Um... Jazz cigarettes, shall we right. say, yeah. which would result in a, in a different kind of energy, I suppose. Yes, yeah, exactly. But I've read a couple couple articles over the years that talk about this mid-80s press-to-play period being kind of cocaine-fueled. So right. oh, I guess I should okay. say allegedly, since I don't know for, for sure that that's If you're true. listening, Paul. <laughs> just in case. Yeah. It is allegedly, yeah. <laughs> I just loved that they didn't even ask him about an upcoming album or or a new single or anything like that. They, they just let him talk. You know, he's, he's Paul McCartney. He can say whatever he wants and they're going to print it. <laughs> he had nothing. I mean, he might, I think he did have something to promote and yet he did not uh, promote it at all. He's just like talking about pickles and, and sheep and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of pickle talk, isn't there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Heavy on the pickles. This one. I, yeah. I enjoyed the pickle chat. I mean, uh, <laughs> Linda would make a mean pickler. Where she came from, they used to have this big barrel of dill pickles, so we are always talking about opening a pickle factory. We could do a great pickle factory. Or we'd like to produce a range of TV dinners where you just slam it in the thing, and it's brill. <laughs> what is that thing? <laughs> the microwave? I guess the microwave, but yeah, they're only a recent thing, so okay. maybe it's forgotten the name. <laughs> um, 
we're going to call it Mrs. Max Meatless Meals. It'd be like Mrs. Max Meatless Meals. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> Only Mattersons have beat us to the mmm line, which was a yeah a meat product that was heavily advertised in the UK in yeah. the in the mm, mid eighties. But yeah, li- a little glimpse into the uh, into the future there with uh, Linda McCartney's range of vegetarian meals and yeah. uh, food and, and stuff. But did she ever put out? Pickles. Did she ever make pickles? Not that I'm aware of. Ah, missed opportunity there. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) The world's missed out there. Um, Yeah, and swats. Um, I got English literature, mate. I got A-level. That's my one big swatty claim to fame. It's only because I had a great teacher, Alan Durban. What was great about him? was he had all these 16, 17-year-old boys on his hands and he was trying to interest them in Chaucer. We were all into rock, man. How was he going to interest us in that? So he told us all the dirty bits. And once we'd read those, we were hooked. I couldn't believe that someone hundreds of years ago was writing something as dirty as that. So I got behind the teacher and I even passed the exam. There's quite a few parts of this issue. It's in the gutter. You know, <laughs> yeah. You've got a doctor from Doctor and the Medics talking about his underpants. You've got all the filth with um, the Zodiac, Zodiac Mind Warp. Mm-hmm. You've got um, um, Pete Burns and his uh, perv tights. <laughs> you know. But this is, this is literary filth, though, so it's acceptable. Hmm. Okay. It's culture. Yeah. Come on. A higher level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then sheep. I mean, what, what on earth is he on about with the sheep? Let's just have a little look. I could talk about sheep forever. When I first went <laughs> when I first went up to see my farm in Scotland, I didn't really like it much. I went round the place and I'd see a dead sheep over the hill. I would think, oh, God, that's very nice, isn't it? Dead sheep. Oh, dearie me. Get me back to London. But when I married Linda, she went crazy for the farm and she said, let's fix the place up. Ding, what a good idea. That had never occurred to me. I must have been mad. So he fixed the fencing so the sheep didn't die because it was all barbed wire and they all got trapped in it. I don't like barbed wire. And we got rid of the rats that were living in the walls and I helped to shear the sheep. And it was like my childhood was coming back to me. I found myself doing things like lying on the ground and smelling the grass. Adults don't lie on the ground. And I thought, this is brilliant. And we started to let the sheep be natural. We don't send them off for meat. They all die of old age, our sheep. And if I can use a word like vibes... It would certainly improve the vibes. <laughs> what on earth is he on about? Oh, wow. Lying on the floor and smoking the grass rather than smelling the grass, I think. <laughs> it's even more obvious when you hear it read aloud. Yeah, now you've said that, I, I, can't, I can't interpret it any other way. No, absolutely. It's, it's, suddenly everything's been brought into crystal-like focus there, Brian. Thank you for that. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you for your prism of understanding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was quite interesting. He talks about John Lennon very candidly here. He says, when we got towards the Beatles split, things got very bitter between us. There was some kind of publicity thing we were trying to put out for the last album, and it had a wedding photo of me and Linda. Only John had crossed out the word wedding and written funeral. Anyone who calls a wedding a funeral is a bit weird, you know, that was too bitter. I just couldn't work it out, but now I feel very sorry for him. I see that it was his hang-up. He did go through a very messed up period. For one thing, he was into heroin, and he thought people were ignoring him and favouring me. I think there were people turning him against me. The only saving grace of it all was that towards the end, before a maniac did his bit, we got over all the hump of that snotty stuff and were able to talk to each other about how's your kids and how's your cats. He liked cats a lot, John. He was a cat person, though his Aunt Mimi. (laughs) Through his Aunt Mimi, he had a lot of cats. (laughs) So again, we've gone to very serious, dark stuff about Lennon and heroin use and, you know, some like bad stuff between them. And then he's like, oh, he loved his cats. Do you think he'd have liked sheep? (laughs) 
<laughs> Little tiny sheep. I thought what he said at the beginning of that paragraph was also very interesting where he said, John's image, unfortunately, has become the hard, sarcastic one. And my image, unfortunately, has become the sentimental softy. But that's not true. Because that really is is true. I mean, that is, to this day, that's still, I think, what people, how how you would group each of them. It hasn't changed. And to hear him just say that he thinks that's unfortunate for whatever reason, I thought was interesting. I thought what was interesting about this is the fact that there's no particular kind of reverence to the fact that he's, he's an ex-Beatle here. It's before that kind of industry had started, really, wasn't it? I mean, obviously, people were aware, and he was special in a way, but he was kind of treated like pretty much any other pop star in this, wasn't he? Yeah, because it's it's like two articles in a row where it's not even an interview where they don't talk about music. It's just the artist commenting on things. Exactly, yeah. He's, he's, he's at, like, equal placing with Doctor out of Doctor and the Medics in, in <laughs> right. Smash world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which I quite like, in a way. It's like a very even way of seeing pop isn't it rather than having kind of different levels it's just it's a big playing field and there's all of these things in it but they're all kind of at the same level but if you give this magazine to someone say read these articles and then they come back and you say okay what are the new albums that those artists have out or what's their new single you have no clue (laughs) no (laughs) it's crazy what kind of musical direction are they going in now I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) not a clue and and note you did mention this before but note that 66 button it comes up in this in this article, because I'm shocked by the number of times Six Six Butnik comes up in this magazine when it's not discussing Six Six Butnik. And we come to one of our favorite parts of the magazine, as always, RSVP. Only half a page today, but oh boy, what a half a page we've got. <laughs> <laughs> RSVP tends to go one of two ways. Either virtually every single advert is gold and there's something in all of them, or it's the complete opposite, and they're all really boring, <laughs> and you wouldn't want to write to anyone. We got a good one today, I would suggest. Um, I will let everyone pick a favourite one out uh, in a moment. I'm just going to start things off with, Hi, I'm a Sid Vicious lookalike, and I'm totally into the Sex Pistols, punk and heavy metal. If anyone aged 15 to 17 is interested in writing to me, the address is Sid. <laughs> this address. And I love the fact that he's, like, he's clearly so into the Sex Pistols and Sid Vicious. <laughs> Whether it's nominative determinism and he was called Sid and then thought, oh, there's this guy, Sid Vicious, and now I like his music, or whether he's renamed himself, but I thought that was great. Um, is there anyone there that uh, is particularly intriguing or you would have wanted to write to at that age? Well, I picked the first one. If you are a female aged between 15 and 19, then please write to a lonely person. <laughs> <laughs> I like reading all modern music and having a good laugh. All the laugh is in, in- quotes i'm not sure what <laughs> yeah i know means. laugh laugh is used twice in that first column in ways that sort of i don't know i don't know what their point is there they put laughing quotes and on the very bottom one andy says i'd love to hear from any girls out there for a laugh <laughs> andy only wants to hear from girls and he's sort of playing it like oh you know it's just for a laugh it's not anything yeah. perverted or too not serious. Too serious. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but i would write i would write to um to david kogan because i was 15 at the time so i i felt i qualified and i liked reading too and and modern music i would have wanted to write to um floor she sounded really great um hi want a pen pal good so do i if you are a cool, trendy person who is madly into aha, especially if you're a Morton Harkett lookalike, go west, the Pet Shop Boys, Brian Adams, Paul Young, and other brill chart music, and are aged 14 to 17, male or female, please write to Flora Stevenson. Well, I loved aha. 
uh, I actually did. I think I had the Go West tape at that time. So yeah. I did love them. Uh, wasn't quite into the Pet Shop Boys yet. But my problem was I wasn't cool and trendy. There was no <laughs> way I was going to write to her. I couldn't po- possibly uh, fit that qualification. So I would, I would resign myself to writing to David instead. No, but I think you, she might have seen you as quite exotic, you know, coming from the States. And <laughs> I think that would have had a certain cachet, you know? That's true. I'm a yeah. cool American, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, I think you'd have been okay. I really do. Interestingly, I was looking through to see if I could contact anyone from, from here earlier on this afternoon. And I, I chose Fleur because she's got an unusual name. And I found a jazz singer called Fleur Stevenson. Oh, wow. It looks like she's probably the same kind of age. I sent her a tweet say, is this you by any chance? But uh, I haven't heard anything back yet. It was only like a few hours before we started off on the off chance that she would go, yes, that's me. Oh, I hope it is. <laughs> I can't imagine there's that many Fleur Stevensons around. But um, anyway, Brian, what about you? So I went with over on the, the far right column, the second one down, Angie. I think she's going to get a letter from me. <laughs> she says, hi, everyone. I am 23 or I am a 23-year-old Chinese girl, and I would like to get in touch with anyone living in Spain or the USA. I'm into Duran Duran, Rick Springfield, AHA, Paul Young, Wham, and many more. So this calendar year, we have seen Duran Duran, Rick Springfield, and AHA in concert. So um, <laughs> I said, oh, that's got to be a sign. I'm going to reach out to this, this young woman and <laughs> see if she wants to reminisce about concerts that we may have seen. <laughs> that's good. What about you, uh, Sai? Well, as I was reading through this magazine, the malaise of 1986 was creeping over me in quite a heavy fashion. And, <laughs> of course I. And I got to this, the RSVP page, and I'm just like, no, none of you. <laughs> none of you are worth writing a letter to. I mean, it's typified, I think, by uh, Sharon in Sunderland, I'm 15 and would like to hear from anyone into Dire Straits, Phil Collins, Simple Minds, or Queen. Now at the time, I probably would have been into those things. But now I look at it and think, <laughs> no, what's wrong with you? You're 15. You shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to get hold of all these people and just give them a good shake. And say, Don't you realize what's going on? Can't you see, you fools? You're just sleepwalking into disaster. Yeah. I actually circled that one and, and just wrote a note. Is this a logical group of artists to like? Like to me, I don't know. I don't know how Queen is perceived in the UK, but to me, like, like, do you guys see any difference between, like, say, Phil Collins and Queen, or or would you group those two together as boring old rock music? I wouldn't necessarily say boring old rock music, but there was certainly uh, at that point in the eighties, it was stadium filling music. So I think yeah, after Live Aid, stadium concerts became more popular. In fact, Queen played Wembley Stadium pretty much a year to the day after mm-hmm. Live Aid that year. And you know, Genesis were playing massive concerts and Bowie did the Glass Spider Tour in 87 and things like that. So yeah, I think there is this kind of, this sort of um, the, the rock royalty, the older guard, the statesman of rock, as it were, mm. that you could have kind of put into the same bracket, not musically, but just because of how long they'd been around and, and a certain sort of status that they'd achieved and and it kind of feeds into what you know becomes very corporate about rock music as it goes on in the 80s and we get into the cd age and stuff yeah i think bands like dire straits and queen although they started from more kind of separate places if you like but i think as the decade 
went on, in my head at least, they they became kind of definitely in the same ballpark, if not you know exactly the same. Yeah, very. They were very kind of CD bands, weren't they? You know, they weren't. I don't think of them as kind of seven-inch single pop bands. I think of them as album bands and albums on CD bands, like serious adult mm-hmm. stuff, you know? And Genesis fall into that category for me as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're going to have Brothers in Arms on CD, you're going to have a kind of Magic by Queen on CD, and you're going to have a Genesis Invisible Touch as well. You know, that's that's going to be the, uh, the very uh, nub of your CD collection right there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I would have written to uh, Karen. I like Karen, the the final letter. I'm a 17-year-old girl called Karen. I like reading, watching films, and listening to Kate Bush, David Sylvian, and Arcadia. And she was from Sweden. So that's that's quite exciting, right? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, very yeah. exotic. Some good artists there. No, I mean, I wasn't a massive Arcadia fan, but uh, certainly David Bush, uh, David Bush <laughs> and Kate <laughs> Sylvian. <laughs> Great pop stars, those two. Love yeah. their records. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, one more that I liked as well was Betty in New York. I thought she sounded fun, just a couple above Karen. Wanted someone, preferably, but not necessarily 18 plus, which I wasn't. I was only 15, 16 at the time, but uh, who likes the monkeys, early tears for fears, Zig Zig Sputnik, again mentioned, Doctor and the Medics, Stephen Duffy, The Cure, The Damned, Ultravox, Frali Poly Pie, Halloween, Cloudy Rainy Days, Scary Nights and Pizza. That's a good combination, isn't it? Mm-hmm. She sounds fun. The monkey, the monkeys are so strange, though, on that list. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they don't really fit in with everything else, do no. they? But... Uh, define early tears for fears. I know that that cracked yeah. me up early. <laughs> right. Oh, all of three years ago, right? So just the hurting, not songs from the big chair. Exactly. Right, right. But I do spy uh, on this page uh-huh. an advert oh. <laughs> uh, for the cutting crew. Or was it just Cutting Crew? There's no there. Just Cutting Crew. Right. Uh, new single out now. I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. Available on 7-inch and extended 12-inch. Um, I think I, I, did I already mention this band in my, my little rant. And they're obviously on the, the video playlist. And I'd forgotten about that video. <laughs> and this, this brought back a, a huge uh, range of emotions, most of them negative as soon as that video came on, I mean, I just, I hate the song. <laughs> always, <laughs> always did. And I know, was it a number one out in the States? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They played it all the time. Yeah, big hit there. And, you know, and I apologize if, if you like that song, but right from the opening keyboards, which is just, just on a horrible preset sound, to just everything about it is just a lot of things that are wrong about music in, in that year. <laughs> In the you know, the edges had just been totally taken off, and it was just so smooth and polished. Uh, oh God, it makes me feel icky. And then, <laughs> but combining the video with it as well, I was like, I was nearly going out of my mind. Oh no, are you going to need counselling? Yeah, I mean, going to make it. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's a lot of hair products going on for a start. Mm. It's in black and white which you know, I think is trying to suggest some sort of like cool authenticity. You know, it's, it's authentic, man, because it's in black and white and they really mean it. Mm-hmm. The singer is going for a look that's kind of like Simon Le Bon meets George Michael. I think this is, you've got that bit of hint of designer stubble right. going on there. But really it comes across as a hybrid of Nick Kershaw, Howard Jones and, and Midge And Jim Kerr. 
Definitely, yeah. Jim Kershaw. Jim, yeah, Jim Kershaw. <laughs> but yeah, the, the way he's got he's got those kind of white booties on and, and he's pointing his feet in, in a certain way. And how many three-quarter length Macs can you get into one pop video? <laughs> what is going oh, on? Those big coats, though, they were the rage back then. They were the I know, best. but he, he was a grown adult. I mean, you know, he was old enough to know better. I was 15 and I thought I looked amazing in my uh, my long coat, but... You know, I was a teenage idiot. He's I, old enough to know better. I, I loved those. Um, now, I did not like that he rolled up his sleeves. But other than that, I, I, when I was 15, I loved big, long overcoats. And in fact, in my locker that year, I know that I cut out pictures from GQ magazine of men in long overcoats. Not even peop- <laughs> like famous people, but just, you know, like fashion spreads of men in overcoats <laughs> and i had those in my in my locker so yeah i get it <laughs> i know what he's trying to do it was working i'm sure for at least some some young women out there clearly <laughs> i i don't think he's particularly attractive but i get you know what he's trying to accomplish he's no he's got dead serial killer eyes that man um and those pixie boots and just the constant swishing and that constant uh, kind of Jim Kerr, kind of beckoning to the camera. That got annoying. Yeah, really, really annoying. And I don't know what the hell's going on. It's, it's like, like the, the basic premise of the video. It's, it's like a performance video, but they've obviously tried to make it a bit more interesting by having like the moving camera and a kind of nebulous story, but there isn't a story there, no. really. It just kind no. of swishes around. And you're like, what's going on? And then as soon as you're thinking, what the hell is happening? And then right at the end of the song, it gets on the back of a motorbike and he starts driving around. <laughs> and then the guy's running around, pushing people out of the way. There's almost some really bad accidents happening. Mm-hmm. Um, almost mows down several of the extras on the shoot. And for what purpose? You know. Oh. Yeah, there's no storyline. It's when it, when it started, I was thinking, well, we're supposed to, with this song in the back in the background, we're supposed to see these other people who were who were involved in the video and sort of meet them and see what they're doing behind the scenes. And it, this is just a camera going through. But then so many things happened that sort of made me think, oh, this I think this camera is supposed to be a person, and we're actually seeing through their eyes. So they go up the stairs mm. and they're they walk over onto a catwalk. But all of a sudden they fall down, like they fall <laughs> off that catwalk and they're down on the ground and the singer comes over and grabs them. Like that made no sense. And and then the part about getting on the bike, that that's what cemented the fact that it, I think it is supposed to be an individual. But there is no, I think they had a good idea. I think, like, Sai, when you started sending the messages about how much you hated this, I said, well, I better go watch it because I've never seen this video before. <laughs> so I didn't understand at first why you were so against it. I was like, I, I think it is a, sort of a clever idea. They just don't execute it well. At the end of the day, it's sort of a failure, but they had a good thought up front. But the more I watched it, the more the the, the lead singer ruins it with this constant gesturing, come hither gesturing, which is okay the first two times, but he does it like 12 times. And Gavin, when you said he is the eyes of a killer or eyes of a serial killer, he seriously yeah. does. He looks like a lunatic. <laughs> he really does. Yeah. He's a cold, cold-hearted man, that one. Yeah. I tell you. And yeah, not only is he doing that beckoning thing a lot, but he's swishing his, his Mac out quite a mm-hmm. lot with his hands in his pockets like a child in the playground running around pretending they've got a cape on or something. And <laughs> right. Yeah, at one point it covers his guitar, which he never really plays. Oh, he had a guitar. I didn't even remember he had one. 
Yeah, yeah, he's got, he's got a white Les Paul and oh. it does, doesn't do anything with it. I mean, it's, it's just a prop, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just not exactly sure what that's about, but it's just, oh, just an awful song. But I remember when I started secondary school, one, one of the lads that I made friends with went round to his house and he was saying, oh, my next door neighbour works for a record company. I'm like, what? I was just, yeah, yeah, he works for I'm like, which record company? I don't know. But I, I think he's got like loads of records in his garage. So I think he must have been in a, in a, a record plugger or something like that. So one day, Saturday afternoon or something, we noticed that the neighbor's garage, the side door had been left open. And there was no one in. There was no car in the garage. There was no car on the drive. So I snuck in. Oh. The, the, the other two lads were on lookout. I'd never done anything like this before in my life. You know, <laughs> oh. this, this, was, this, was, this was exhilarating and terrifying in equal measure. So I'd snuck into this garage and there's all these boxes, brown 12-inch square boxes. I'm thinking, these must be the records. These must be the records. So I'm excitedly, like, you know, just sort of like seeing which ones are open and some of them were open. So I opened one of them and it was full of cutting crew albums. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I closed that one. Went and found the next one that was open. It was full of cutting crew albums. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and all the ones that were open were cutting crew albums. But not only that, they were all damaged. <laughs> what? Oh, no. <laughs> I, mean, I took one, <laughs> even though I hated them. It's a free record. It's a free record. <laughs> I felt so bad. <laughs> but also, you can't return a stolen cutting crew record, can you? Mm. So, no. Um, Martin's neighbour, I do apologise for stealing a Cutting Crew <laughs> album from your garage. I never played it. I mean, what a thing to go to prison for. OK, coming on to um, Killing Joke. I think it's the first time I remember seeing them in the magazine. Uh, I think Simon Mills draws the short straw here and has to go and interview them. I- I'm sure they'd be <laughs> delighted with the, uh, the subheading of this article. Are Killing Joke the most horrible group ever? <laughs> And uh, this it's quite a beginning to this interview. I'm going to read a, read a little bit from this. It says, In a converted warehouse somewhere in London, Killing Joke are waiting to have their photographs taken. While the photographer is busy changing the film and messing around with the lights, Geordie, Raven and Paul are skulking around the studio, looking suitably doomy in their dark-coloured designer togs. But Jazz, the one I'm supposed to be frightened of, the one who went a bit weird a few years back and legged it to the frozen wastes of Iceland without telling the rest of the group... The one who smears his face with war paint for live performances. The one who once threatened to punch or smash its journalist in the face. Jazz is nowhere in sight. All I can see is a slightly built Diego Maradona lookalike sporting an unruly mop of curly black hair, a distinctly casual leather jacket, washed out grey trousers and a pair of battered trainers who's rummaging through a rather girly British Airways shoulder bag. Have you heard that bandit bites? Paul asks nobody in particular. They sound like yes. Oh well, says the bloke with the Diego Maradona hairdo. The more shit there is around, the better it is for us. Aha, I think that must be Jazz. (laughs) Hello, I'm Jazz, he offers politely. Listen, I want to talk about music today. Not the usual nonsense. The usual nonsense being, he explains, the image of thuggery and aggression perpetuated by certain sections of the media, which tends to overshadow the band's music. And indeed, Jazz does want to talk about music. Give him a chance, and on he rattles about the validity, longevity, beauty and fortitude of Killing Joke's music, which he considers, rather modestly, to be an art form. We endeavour to make beauty in a contemporary way, 
We make beautiful, profound music. And this new album, Brighter Than A Thousand Suns, is going to make Killing Joke into a massive, massive international act. Once he's settled into one of these bragging, boastful outbursts, it's very difficult to stop him. I was reading this article the other day, continues, by Anthony Burgess, who wrote Clockwork Orange. He was saying that the majority of pop musicians are inarticulate and not particularly intelligent people. And even the best of the pop world, like the Beatles, for example, do not compare with the greats like Beethoven, who are the masters of music. Well, I couldn't agree more. Killing Joke, however, do not fall into that pop category. We're mentally and physically fitter than we've ever been before. We make serious music, music to last, the subject matter and lyrics of which are of great significance. And it kind of goes on like that for quite a while. It's not your typical, like, here's a few things on my flat that I don't like, or here's some stuff about pickles. You know, it it gets quite serious. And uh, I think it's fair to say that Killing Joke aren't a band with uh, an undersized ego and a lack of their own uh, (laughs) self-importance or much of a sense of humour. So they... They talk a lot about the importance of Killing Joke's music and then it only really gets a bit more interesting, I think, towards the end where finally Simon manages to get them off this uh, train that they're on and talk a little bit about other bands and uh, gets them to slag off uh, some of the bands. And it was kind of surprising some of the people they like and some of the people they don't like. Uh, It says, Killing Joke don't hate all chart music, they just find most of it insignificant and (laughs) one-dimensional. There are one or two exceptions, though. Kate Bush who happens to be a Killing Joke fan herself, and Phil Collins, an accomplished musician especially. Others, like Wham, entertainers but not artists like us, The Smiths, foppish and dull, Prince, a very clever thief, a plagiarist like Bowie, all get the uncompromising, dismissive Killing Joke treatment. And Brilliant, the group formed a few years ago by ex-Killing Joke bass player Youth. What does Jazz think of Brilliant? That's a silly question, says Jazz, his nostrils flared in anger. You're digging up things that are so far back in the past now. I mean, Raven's been in the band longer than youth was. If you keep talking about them, I'll get insulted and cut the conversation short. I don't want to talk about the past. I want to talk about now. And I don't want to say anything of this in the finished interview. Is that clear? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So what did we make of Killing Joke? Are they a band that are known much in the States? No, not really. No. I, I had never heard a Killing Joke song until last year. I, I heard the song called The 80s. Oh, yeah. Which I actually liked. I kind of thought that was good. But in my in my mind and um, my memory from this article as a, as a youth, um, I just thought they were someone I would never want to listen to. I thought they sounded terrible. I was completely <laughs> shocked because, you know, I, I I I don't think there is much humor in this one. Doctor and the Medics, I didn't like that. I didn't like that group because of them, but it was going over my head. Yeah. I don't think much of this is, is supposed to be funny, if any of it. And they just seem like such ugly people that as a kid, I was like, I want nothing to do with this band. I, <laughs> with the question, are Killing Joke the most horrible group ever? I firmly believe, yes, they are. <laughs> and I never explored them any further. Well, I'd never heard of them. I mean, other than I knew the song, The 80s, too. I think I became aware of it at the same time. What what I think is interesting, now I, I don't know who Diego Maradona is, but I, I described this man as having Brian May hair and and Alice Cooper eye makeup (laughs) because that's what it looked like to me, especially in the video that I watched for Adorations. And this outfit that he's got on is such a a strange juxtaposition of, I don't know what what kind of a message he's trying to send because we've got guys next to him in in this photo in, in suits and, you know, they're kind of in a consistent outfit. He's got on a leather jacket and then what I think are 
pants that you would wear to work to your office, but he's got a leather jacket on top. It's like he can't decide, you know, what he wants to be. <laughs> he's like, well, I want to keep his options open. Right. Very serious, <laughs> yeah. intellectual, you know, wearing trousers as if I were in the university. But then I'm I'm also very tough and, and very macho. And so I've got a leather jacket on, too. I don't know. It's strange. They're really not a smush it's band, are they? We were wondering that. We were talking about them last night. And, and to me, I, I wrote, this sounds like dark wave music, like Sisters of Mercy or the Mission, that kind of music. And, and I was very surprised that they they made this magazine. Uh, although I was, I mean, I don't know anything about them. So I was like, well, maybe they did have top top 40 hits. But I think I checked and this song peaked at 42, if I recall correctly. So it didn't, didn't quite make the top 40. Yeah, I think it had been a bit of a, a freak incident in that they'd had a big hit the year before with a song called Love Like Blood, which I actually absolutely loved at the time. Mm, that's a great song. I mean, I think, you know, if I had my time again uh, in the 80s, I would be a goth, quite clearly. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. I liked Killing Joke and I loved The Cure and Susan the Banshees and all these sorts of things. But I remember um, Love Like Blood, that they were on top of the pops with that. And it was terrifying. Jazz with his, his, his uh, monobrow just really getting angry. In, in, into the camera and they clearly think that that they you know are on top of the pops then like a year before and in this issue of smash it's the clear thing that they're above pop music which is why it's, it's unusual to see them in here but i think it simply is because they'd had a big hit the year before and you know somebody uh, on their press team was to say yeah let's let's get you in smash it yeah. mm-hmm. sort of thing but i get the feeling that the writer and an and editor are just gently having fun stitching them up because basically they just let jazz rant throughout the piece. Mm. And then that final bit that you read out, you know, uh, I don't see any of this in the finished interview. Is that clear? Absolutely. It's like, yeah, yeah. we've just stitched you up, mate. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's a, just another way of bringing everybody to the same level, you know, whether it's mm. their, them talking about goofy stuff, you know, pickles and, and plastic babies, or <laughs> a band like this that, you know, serious things, how important their music is, they, they won't go off on that. So they let him do that, and then they say, "You know what? We're gonna we're gonna turn it on its on its ear at the end here, and we're gonna say, yeah, we we don't really think too much of your your very important thoughts.' So, <laughs> so that's that's how they kind of bring it to the same level as these other these other articles and artists that they've talked about. The other thing as well that uh, made me smile is when you watch the video for Adorations. I mean, it's a, not a great song anyway, and they're just like in a like in a big church and it's all a bit moody and they've got the long coats on and they look like cutting crew or Mr. Mr. or something with this <laughs> really kind of pretty weak song. So for all this, like all these ideas in the interview and all this stuff about how, you know, intellectually superior they are to all this pop stuff and all that. And then they come out with a song that's really boring and weak, you know? So uh, yeah, they talk the talk. I laughed at the fact that they stressed that they're also physically fit. They're in, they're in incredible physical condition as well, as if that's important to <laughs> what they're doing. We get to page 28 and a feature on Tina Turner. She was a huge star in the 60s, down the dumper in the 70s, and now at 47, she's a huge star again. She likes Cadbury's Whispers. She has a house in California full of knacks. She's got a brand new single out this week. She's just had a chat to Smash It's reporter Chris Heath. Yeah, Tina Turner was uh, back on the carousel, like it says, after being down the dumper in the 70s. (laughs) I like how this one begins, dropping in some action going on here. Get away, screams Tina Turner. I'm having it. I'm having it right now. 
It's the middle of a boiling hot London afternoon. And in a posh caravan outside the set of her new video, Tina Turner is furiously wrestling her manager, Roger, for a white paper bag. What, pray, can it contain? Tapes of her latest LP? Ten million pounds in news notes? An autographed copy of Mike Reed's book of poetry? Brian Adams' home phone number? You can't have it, shrieks Roger, trying not to laugh. You're on a diet. I'm having it, she screams in fits of giggles and pulls out of the bag. A Cadbury's whisper. She had wanted some American thing called a 2468, but the corner shop couldn't help. (laughs) Roger sits back down behind the table where he was busy making transatlantic phone calls and multi-million pound deals. And Tina shoves the rest of her sweeter collection into a drawer for later. I like candy every now and again when things get boring, she confides. <laughs> uh, what's, what's the 2468 bar? Do you remember those? <sighs> no, we have no recollection of that. And we posted on our Twitter and our Facebook, does anybody remember this candy bar, which this magazine claims is an American treat, and no one remembers it. And I, I looked it up too. I, I did some searching on the internet. I could not find any evidence uh-huh. that it existed. I... I don't know what they're talking about here. Unless it was something regional in California, I don't know what it was. I've never heard of it. Did you try looking for a 13579 bar? <laughs> Darn it. I didn't think of that. That would be odd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, joining t- <laughs> We're joining Tina, uh, like it says, on the uh, set for her video for Typical Male. Uh, there's a nice little potted history in there as well. There's a lot packed into these uh, three pages. It says, uh, looking through the director's monitor to see what's actually being filmed as she strolls up and down, it all looks very glamorous indeed. But it's not. Outside, it's about 80 degrees. And despite the futile efforts of a couple of cooling fans inside, it's much, much hotter. And to make things worse... The studio has had its floor covered in about an inch of water, apparently to reflect the light from the camera. Am I enjoying it? laughs Tina almost hysterically. Obviously not. It's like walking in swamps. My feet are soaking. But that's the movies, isn't it? She says philosophically. You're never really comfortable. You're sticky and your makeup has been on all day. It's not glamorous at all. It looks great on screen, but regular people who aren't actors don't know how hard it really is. But like the trooper she is... She doesn't mind. Um, so I think this really shows how hard Tina works, this this piece. Um, and when you consider that she'd only come back, you know, and, and come back famously kind of three, two, three years beforehand, and she's had a pretty rough ride. So I think she's she knows that this period now, this period of success, she's really, really got to work it. Um, but I think she was she was accepted as as a massive star pretty much straight away when she came back in in the eighties, but because of probably you know financial ruin and all sorts of things, she is having to work hard and 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 she knows that you know this is the sort of thing getting wet feet for a new pop video is, is what she's got to do to maintain that that level of success. I was really interested to read this one because I got into Tina Turner in twenty twenty one, so I have picked up you know Private Dancer, Break Every Rule, Foreign Affair. Um, and a bunch of these albums, which because at the time when this when this song and especially those earlier songs off of Private Dancer when they were coming out, it didn't seem like we were supposed to be fans of her because she was older than my mom. <laughs> and this was you mentioned earlier in the episode that adults were buying pop music records again, and that's part of the reason why you don't like 1986 so much because 
You know, it's they're influencing the charts. And that's really, really what it seemed like to me. So I disregarded every song off that Tina ever released as a single. But going back to her in the past year or so, especially Private Dancer. Private Dancer is awesome. It's a great album. And uh, from there, things kind of slide a, a little bit with each successive record. But I, I totally respect like the work ethic she had around this time period. And the the reissue of Foreign Affair comes with a live DVD of a concert from that time period. She's amazing. She was an amazing performer. I could watch that concert every month and, and not get bored with it. So I'm sort of embarrassed. The point of this all is just to say I'm sort of embarrassed that I disregarded her for so long. And now I'm just amazed by this woman. I think she's fantastic. I think you get a nice sense in this as well. You know, you mentioned before, Sai, about uh, how she's she's a real kind of showbiz trooper, isn't she? Like, quite a sort of an old-fashioned tradition in a way, you know, more more so than a lot of the, the newer pop acts at this time. And, um, and she's very grounded. I think I, I love how probably the most excited she gets in the whole interview is when she's talking about decorating. And she that really like makes her go, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she says, uh, I've been decorating. It's wonderful. She gushes. I like to do it myself because I like to look around the house and see things that I like with a memory of where I bought it. If you let an interior decorator do it, then they're the one in the shops looking at all the pretty things while I'm sitting at home waiting. And then she kind of goes on more and more about that. And that's the moment where she really kind of gets energized um, more so than, you know, talking about anything else particularly. Obviously, there's a bit of Bowie chat in there, isn't there? Which is, uh, it's always good. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's because of that association between Tina Turner and David Bowie that I kind of accepted her. You know, it, it, uh, David appeared on stage with her at the NEC in Birmingham the year before, and she'd sang on the Tonight album. And so, you know, I didn't know about her earlier songs at that point, you know, the stuff that she'd done in the 60s and 70s. So for me, she was up there with, you know, all, all the other rock royalty at the time. Mm. Did, didn't question it. <laughs> well, I noticed that the captions of these photos, I especially like them because they say, boots ahoy. And then they say, <laughs> balls ahoy. And then they say, sticks ahoy. So I know that you mentioned in your uh, diary entry, you said pervs ahoy, which, <laughs> which honestly ends up fitting in pretty well with the, the kind of overall themes or or some of the topics in this this issue, right? It's a very Pervs Ahoy issue, this yeah, one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It is. yeah. Pervs and Pickles Ahoy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but the video was fun. We watched it. Um, yeah, it's a strange video, isn't it? Well, yeah. A massive foot. Oversized shoe right there. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oversized pencil. And it seems like crossword puzzles, oversized crossword puzzles in videos mm. was a thing in 1986 because there's one in here and... We talked about one in our own show um, in when we were discussing aha scoundrel days. Um, Manhattan skyline has a big crossword puzzle in it as well. So that I don't know what like the oversized props. I guess that's just a fun thing to do in, in music videos. Yeah, I didn't really understand the significance of the big shoe in this video, but uh, <laughs> or the crossword or anything else about it. But you know, it was like. It was entertaining enough, and Tina always puts on a good performance, doesn't she? Bless her. So yeah, she's so much fun to watch in this video. I think. Yeah. One last thing, I just really enjoyed the section. I, I'm going to probably come off as a pervert when I say I really enjoyed this, but I did really enjoy it. The part where uh, the interview continues into her trailer, her, her room, wherever that is. There's two chairs in the room. She's in one chair. Her feet are in the other chair, and she points to the ground and tells the reporter, 
you can sit on the floor. Oh yeah. I and so he has that. to sit there on yeah. the floor looking up at her, her feet, which are not sexy because they're all soggy and wrinkled <laughs> because she's been standing in an inch of water for hours. So it's not a sexy foot, but I just thought that was funny. I, I enjoyed the fact that she did that to, to the poor guy. Okay, before we go any further, it's that time of the show once more. It's lyric quiz time, people. So you can play along at home if you like. What I've done is I've taken three different songs that are the lyrics that have been given for in the magazine, and I'm going to give you a multiple choice of which of three choices this little uh, snippet of a lyric is from, okay? We'll see how you do. You can play along at home. First little snippet, he gave her all the love that anyone can. Is it from, and don't be looking in the magazine. Okay, I can see you're all. All right. Tina Turner, typical male. Bruce Hornsby in the range. That's just the way it is. Or Prince, girls and boys. Sarah, I'm coming to you first. What do you think? He gave her all the love that anyone can. Tina, Bruce or Prince? I am going to say the purple one, Prince. Okay. Sai. Yeah, I think I'm going to go for Prince out of those three. Yeah. Okay. Are you going to rock the boat, Brian, or are you sticking with the party line there? Nope, party line. Okay, you're all correct. Yay! One point, everyone, girls and boys. Okay. (laughs) Question two, and I'll come to you first on this one, Brian. You turn a corner and you see a door. Walk on through, throw yourself on the floor. Okay, you turn a corner and you see a door. Walk on through, throw yourself on the floor. Is it? Shout by Lulu. Janet Jackson's When I Think of You. Or is it Dreamtime by Daryl Hall? So is it Lulu, Janet Jackson, or Daryl Hall? I will say it is Daryl Hall. Okay. Uh, Sarah? I think that's too many words for the Lulu song, so I'm going to choose uh, Daryl Hall as well. Okay. Sai? I can hear Daryl Hall singing that. I don't know whether he does, <laughs> but it would fit. You're all correct. Very good. I can't catch you out on this one. Ah, right. Third time looking for me. Let's see. Let's see how we do on this one. Sai, you've got first choice on this one. Okay. This time. Yeah, yeah. People who make war are making love instead. They could be dreaming of another time. So people who make war are making love instead. They could be dreaming of another time. Is it the real thing? Can you feel the force? Is it I Can Prove It by Phil Fearon? Or is it Ozzy Osbourne's The Ultimate Sin? Is it the real thing, <sighs> Phil Fearon, or Ozzy? I, uh... Okay, um... Ooh. Well, that's a tricky one. I've, it's I've, a tricksy I've, one, I've, Yeah, it? I've got no idea, uh, but I'm going to go for uh, the real thing. Okay. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just a wild stab in the dark. Okay, cokey. Sarah? I hope it doesn't seem like I'm just piggybacking off of him because that's what I was going to say before. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, I, I think it might be the real thing. All yeah. right. Is the quote, I, I kind of forget, is the quote, the pe- people that could be making war are making love instead? People who make war are making love instead. Okay. They could be dreaming of another time. Okay. If it was Ozzy, it would be reversed. And Phil, I think, is more interested with just getting some action himself. So I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to agree with the other two. I hate to just be the, you know, follow follow the party line again, but I think it is feel the force. You got to go with what you think. 
And you were right to do so. Oh, well right. Very good. Oh, I just couldn't get you there at all. I think, to be fair to me, there's less lyrics in this one than there are in some other ones. You know, sometimes we get kind of double the amount of lyrics and it's kind of easy to find mm-hmm. stuff. But i got to say, you know, you play the cards you've been given and you all did very well there. Congratulations, panel. Thank you. How did you do at home? Let us know. Right, well, we're just going to step away from, from Smash It's for just a couple of moments because, Gavin, you've got something to uh, to share with us, to tell us about something that's possibly Smash It's adjacent. Kind of, yeah. Exciting pop news. Um, <laughs> at the age of 52, I've become an author for the first time. It's nice, <laughs> isn't it? My co-author. Uh, yes, uh, my new book, uh, We Peaked at Paper, has just been published uh, in the last week. Uh, on Boat Whistle Press. And what it is, Si, is an oral history of British fanzines. So we took 20 different editors and basically interviewed them. So we really just wanted to get a bit of a, a sort of historical and sociological overview of um, of the world of zines in the UK, kind of from the 70s up to the present day. So we start with a guy called Rob Hansen, who's been working on various sci-fi fanzines I think since the early 70s, and he talks a lot about how zines started in in Britain. first UK zine was in 1936. It was a, a sci-fi fanzine. Uh, and then we moved through Mark Perry, obviously Sniffing Glue, Mick Middles, Stuart Holmes, so kind of going through punk and post-punk. And then we've got people like William Potter from Curd, Pete Perfides, who edited the first fanzine that I ever came across and read and perturbed in the uh, mid to late 80s. Um, Mark Taylor, who did Smiths Indeed, Karen Ablaze. Ablaze was a legendary music fanzine that um, came out of Leeds from around about sort of 86, 87 until the 90s. We've also got football fanzines in there. We've got a Middlesbrough FC fanzine, Fly Me to the Moon, and Kick Up the R's, a QPR fanzine. And then we move through um, Riot Girl with Saskia Holling, and then we've got people that are making fanzines today like Selena Laverne Day and Arlo who is the pint-sized punk he's a, a young lad that he was 10 when he started a fanzine in Bristol during the first lockdown so fanzines are, are still going and uh, yeah like I say we've just tried to kind of tell the story of fanzines through those different voices and, and give a bit of a, a context to them all and, and try to present a wide range of different fanzines they're generally music based but as I said not exclusively yeah, because there are a few things that, you know, might pique the pop kids' attention. So uh, Sean Pattenden is one of the people that you've spoke to, of course, worked on Smash Hits. Exactly, yes, an ex-Smash uh, Hits staffer. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because her zine uh, was called How to Win Friends and Influence People. There were only three issues, I think, from about 88 to 90. But that was how she got her job at Smash Hits. She sent them into the office in fact, in the book, I asked her a little bit about it. I said, tell me how you ended up getting a job with Smash It's. She said, I sent them a copy of the first two fanzines. I asked, had the job been advertised? No, I just sent them on spec. Imagine that. <laughs> just sending them off and going, yeah, you get a job. Uh, she says, uh, I just finished my A-levels and was waiting for the results. Someone said, you like music and you like writing. Why don't you write about music? It took someone else to say that to me. I sent the zines and quickly reviewed some singles too. A few weeks later, the editor rang me and said he thought the reviews were trying too hard, they were too self-conscious, but that he really liked the fanzines that they'd made him laugh in his office. So I went in on trial that August doing a couple of days a week. 
I wrote the competitions and did silly jokes, and I found myself in an office sitting next to Sylvia Patterson, Tom Doyle, and Mike Sutar, these gods. <laughs> I was still reading my sister's copy of the magazine, so I knew the names of the writers and their writing styles so well. You pour over things at that age. They paid me £30 a day, which they deeply apologised for, but I was living at home, so I could afford to give a bit to my mum and use the rest for travel and food. The work built up. So I said, so the fanzines really led to everything that came afterwards. And she says, yeah, definitely. So there you go. You never know where a fanzine might lead you. <laughs> <laughs> so where can the pop kids uh, get this book from? All good bookstores. <laughs> the usual websites. Yeah, don't go to the bad bookstores. <laughs> uh, well, it's even in the bad bookstores and, and in the merely adequate ones. Uh, but probably the best place you can go to, if you go to www.boatwhistle.com, that's boatwhistle, all one word, dot com. That's the publisher, and it's an independent press, so more money goes towards the publishers than uh, if you buy it from one of the other websites that people might automatically go to. And remind us again what it's called. Certainly, so. Si. <laughs> it's <laughs> We Pete at Paper. Lovely. Well, thank you, Gavin. And now back to the carousel. <laughs> And then before we get to the, the main interview with Human League, we'll just uh, take a moment to dally a little on a little feature called The Way We Were, which was a um, little kind of photographic traipse through the uh, the history books of various pop stars from the past up to the present. Brian, this is something that you said you really wanted to talk about. Um, what was it about this that really caught your eye and triggered your uh, your memories? Yeah, this is, I don't know, this is the thing from this magazine, if... You know, a year ago, if you'd said, what's the one thing in that magazine that made the biggest impact on you? It would have been this article, The Way We Were, which really has nothing to it other than a bunch of pictures of people over time and no storyline, really, or information. But even to this day, I do love this this article. And there's just a number of reasons why. At the time that I got this, I was infatuated with Dave Gahn from Depeche Mode. I, that Depeche Mode is all that I thought about. <laughs> 24 hours a day so seeing these pictures of him early on even though he doesn't look very cool it was it was a treat to me just because i i discovered the band in 85 so you know i missed those first four years and uh in truth picture number five of dave mm -hmm. is the picture i would take with me to the barber shop or the hair salon whenever i would get my hair cut as a kid and say i want to look like this <laughs> and did you ever look like that no i never really no quite they, they it never off. quite get it right do they the barbers nope. Nope. That's if they don't stand you down, you know, like they normally do. You know what barbers are like. <laughs> exactly. They make a promise and then they don't turn up and then you have to do it yourself. <laughs> so true. So unreliable. <laughs> they are. And, uh, you know, I was also a big Culture Club fan, so I enjoyed seeing these pictures of Boy George, but I was always kind of like thrown for a loop after the first couple because, like, if you look at that fifth picture of Boy George there, Hmm. I have no recollection of him ever looking like this. But this sort of article doesn't really work with Boy George because it, it seems like he would have two or three different looks a week, you know, in his, yeah. in his prime. So trying to sum up him over four years' time in eight pictures is just silly. Uh, but there are so many strange pictures of him there that, that I got a kick out of that as well. Yeah, that fifth one, he looks like an Afghan hound, doesn't he? It's a really odd look. <laughs> yeah. got... But what I thought was funny about this piece is that, you know, he's, he's got – Boy George and um, Dave Gahan, George Michael. And, you know, it, it's just a, such a short period of time, you know, four, five years at the most. And how many different looks they all went through. 
in that that mm-hmm. period. I mean, like you say, Boy George would you know he would change his look with every probably every single that would come out because he needed a different look for for the videos. But yeah, I don't remember George Michael's hair changing so much in four years. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you get you know a lot a lot of photos of David Bowie fifteen. Of David Bowie. Yeah, he takes up half the page, and that's, you know, just a smattering of examples. Yeah, yeah, I think you're quite right. And then in the uh, bottom right-hand corner there, (laughs) Shaking Stevens, four photos of him, (laughs) all absolutely identical. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's actually the the real reason why I wanted to bring this up, because somewhere along the line, early in our podcast, like in the first two years, I made a just off-the-cuff joke about Shaking Stevens, just sort of ridiculed him, and... In America, Shaken Stevens only ever had one hit, um, Cry Just a Little Bit. It was like a mm-hmm. cover. Um, and, and that, I think, was top 10. Like, I remember seeing him on our little chart shows, like Solid Gold and things. But he came and went, and, and we never really heard of him again. So to me, I didn't know he was like this big thing. So I knew that one song, and I knew this little gag about <laughs> Shaken Stevens for identical pictures. And... You know, they're making fun of him. So I thought it was fair game to make fun of Shaken Stevens. Um, so I did. I forget why it came up. We got, I mean, for us, a good number of emails, people defending this guy and, you know, saying, I like your show, but, and then they go on about why Shaken Stevens is awesome. So I consider that I got in a lot of trouble and it all stems from the gag at the end of this article, which stuck out in my mind 35 years later for whatever reason. <laughs> so I've always felt a little bad about that. We go past several posters of Banana Armour and Morrissey and Janet Jackson with the horse, as mentioned on the front cover. And we get to the uh, the reason, really, why Brian and Sarah have chosen this magazine, The Human League. So I don't want to say too much about it because I'm really interested to see uh, their reasons for, for choosing this particular issue. Let me just set the scene a little, though, before we uh, pass over to our transatlantic cousins. Chris Heath has joined The Human League in a heated debate. Uh, the head of the article says, one of them's an alcoholic in quote marks. One of them gets beer chucked all over him whenever he leaves the house, and one of them is just boring. They used to be the most famous group in the whole world, and now they're back and hoping to be famous all over again. So just to set the scene, you know, obviously Human League been a very successful band in the UK and had five top ten singles from uh, from 81 to 83. Then three top 20 singles in 84, but then they've had a, a period of being away for a few years, and they've just kind of come back with Human. And... Uh, Let's just see what they're arguing about. It says, the Human League are having an argument. The four of them here today, Phil Oakey, the singer, and when it comes down to it, the boss. Joanne Catherall, the backing singer. She lives with Philip. Susan Sully, the other backing singer. And Ian Burden, the bass player. Missed their train from Sheffield to London this morning, and they all seem to disagree whose fault it was. This, it becomes plain over the next few hours, is rather common. In fact, they seem to spend most of their time teasing, laughing, and most of all arguing with each other. And as well as thinking up new things to argue about, they're quite happy to recap on the squabbles they've already had driving down in Susan's Audi for today's interview. First, there was the one about Susan's driving abilities. I don't think you're that bad, teases Philip. It just feels like you're that bad. I'm not a bad driver, she huffs as they all leap in with their tails of swerving from one side of the road to another at 90 miles an hour, a couple of millimetres from the car in front. I'm just different. 
She's binary in everything, giggles Philip. With her opinions, everything's either marvellous or abysmal. And with her driving, you're either standing still or going very, very fast. And then there's the argument about Susan's taste in music. She insisted on playing her copy of Peter Gabriel's new album, So, in the car. Rubbish, according to Joanne. So Philip made Susan stop at the service station and he bought Diana Ross's last LP, Eaten Alive. None of them like that. <laughs> and it goes on and on. I could, I could read more, but uh, you kind of get the idea. So, um, Brian, should we come to you? Why did you choose this particular issue? What do you want to say about Human League here? Well, I actually would... would I'm going to throw the ball for this to Sarah because Sarah is the reason why we'll probably never talk about this era of the Human League on our show <laughs> and why I wanted to do that here. So I'll let her. Yeah, her that. that's, that's true. Um, yeah, I, I do like the Human League. I, I really love Dare and I, I love um, a lot of their later stuff. Um, but Crash? No. I do not like it at all. <laughs> and, and that's a famous disagreement in our, in our household. Um, I've just never been fond of it. I, even from the first listen. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, I, and it's never grown on me. <laughs> so. And just the other day I was playing uh, just random, playing songs on a random, and a Human League song came on, and Sarah said, what album is this from? I said, crash. And she said, gross. And then she walked out of the room. <laughs> yeah. I, wow. I just don't, I don't like this. I don't like the sound of Human League. This is not what I want my Human League to sound like. Um, and the, the single, Human, oh my gosh. Um, it's so boring. <laughs> it's so <laughs> awful. I, I, I wrote new lines for it. Oh, I got The tears I cry aren't tears of pain. It's only because this song is lame. <laughs> oh, wow. I, oh, I just don't. It's so, it's so boring. That, that song, especially the drum beat never changes the whole time. It's the exact same drums the entire time. Not even a Phil that I can think of. Phil Oki. Well, yeah, except he's calling himself Philip now. True. Right. Yeah. But, but um, it's not that I don't like, you know, what Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis do on other people's work. I like Janet Jackson control. I like, you know, some of the other stuff that they did, but I do not like them helping out human league in this way because <laughs> I don't think it helped them. Love is all that matters. That's the one song that I don't mind on that album. And that's a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis song. That's just the one though. Excellent single though. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I don't want I don't want to have to talk about this for a long period of time because I think people will probably really get annoyed with me <laughs> um, and, and my uh, dislike of this era of Human League. Well, I, I would I would agree with you. I I like early Human League sort of up to this point. That for me, Human is a really boring song, and I've never heard Crash before. And I, I listened to it uh, last month, and it yeah, it didn't didn't do anything for me for the same reason i i, I just associate phil Oakey's voice with that kind of synth backing and, and that kind of sound they've got and i just really don't think it's kind of suited to that different kind of you know modern r&b kind of you know mid 80s production sound it takes away for me the, the magic of human league and, and what they're all about and what they're really good at and it just seems a bit 
desperate. I'm, I'm, I'm all for bands, you know, trying something different and changing things up once in a while. And, you know, it gets boring if they just keep releasing the same kind of thing, like Shaking Stevens or Hubie <laughs> <be> Bloody 40. <laughs> but I think this is a an example where it really doesn't work as an experiment. But... Brian, I'm aware you you have very different feelings on this. Is this one of your favorite Human League albums? No, it's not. It's not really one of my favorite. I understand why people don't like it. You know, I, I have common sense, so I can listen to it and I can hear a difference between it and Dare or Octopus. Mm. But you know, whenever I was a youngster at say age of 10, 1981, I didn't buy full albums. I bought the seven singles of songs that I like, and that's when I started to get into synth pop. I would I had. Tainted Love by Soft Cell. I had Don't You Want Me by The Human League. Devo, Whip It. And I sort of started to grow into that sound as opposed to ACDC and Pink Floyd, which is what I had been buying. Then by the time we get to 1986, I have money and and I'm buying full albums. So this was the first Human League full-length album that I ever heard. I think it probably was, other than Don't You Want Me, this was my first introduction to The Human League because I don't remember Keep Feeling Fascination and Mirror Man. I know they were big hits here. But I don't remember hearing them back then as a kid. So I, I don't think I knew them. So I said, well, I like Don't You Want Me. The song Human is awesome because I thought it was awesome. I still I still really like it. So I'm, I know that they're a great synth band. I'm going to get this album. So it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. But other than one song called Swang, which is just really obnoxious, uh, I like every song in this album. And there are <laughs> songs like Party and there are songs like Love Is All That Matters, which I think sort of sound like like the human league i can see that being a human league song and the rest of the songs are just great 80s pop songs in my opinion so i enjoy them i need your loving the video is ridiculous the shoulder blade or shoulder pads are out to here and they're they're so made up in an 80s style but i dig that song and that was a that was the second single here in the u.s and i thought it was going to be really huge because it sounded to me like janet jackson like i was like this is going to be a great single for them following up a number one smash and I, I don't think it even hit the top 50. So um, if, if I were to rank the Human League albums, you know, the order that, that I like them in, this is probably, you know, near the middle or, or closer to the end. Mm. But I still do really enjoy it. There, there isn't really a bad Human League album, in my opinion. What about you, Cy? Do you like this period? I do not like this period <laughs> at all. I just, I just can't equate the sound uh, of the songs on this album with the Human League and... Uh, you know, my introduction to the Human League was the, the Reproduction album, probably like five years before this. So Reproduction, Travel Log, I was obsessed with for, for quite a few years and really liked Dare. But I, I found them that, that there seemed to be something amiss by the time they got to the Hysteria album, the Lebanon and, and Louise and things. And I think I think they were struggling as a band. You know, there's... When we covered the Live Aid issue, there's an interview with Phil Oakian there. So that's summer 85. They were recording an album then. And from what I can gather, that album was completely junked. And they, they went on to do the, the Crash album with Jimmy Jam and, and Terry Lewis instead. And I don't know if they necessarily felt comfortable. Um, or they certainly don't sound comfortable doing these songs it's very much Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis had, very much had their style and Phil and the girls had to fit in with that. And it didn't seem like a collaboration. It didn't seem like something that was working both ways. It was, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, you know, we do this and you're going to sing on it. So it, it doesn't work for me 
at all. I, I, I just I just don't accept it as a human being. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like control and I like um the other stuff that they did with Alexander O'Neill and stuff. Brilliant, brilliant sound. Worked really well for those artists, but just didn't work for, for the Human League, I don't think. Mm. I'm sure what you say about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis not giving them much to do and, and them taking control over everything is true because there are numerous interviews that you see over time. Band members leave the Human League forever because they fly to Minneapolis and have nothing to do. They sit around in the studio for two weeks right. and don't get to do anything, so they just just leave. Well, while they're in Minneapolis, they do get at least get to see Prince in a club, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do. Susan says, Prince stood right in front of us in this club. I couldn't get over his shoes. They were this high, and he nearly fell over the wire, separating the artist bar from everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so they've got some things to do, but yeah, it must have been a pretty boring time for them. I was sort of surprised by the fact that the Human League was going to take the train from Sheffield to this interview. They They came off of four years of being one of the biggest bands in the world, and they were just going to go on the train? Maybe they were going first class. Oh, is that such a thing? Yeah. Okay. Well, I would assume they would just be driven. They wouldn't. I was shocked to see that Susan drives. You know, I just assumed that stars the the size of the Human League would have somebody who just would make sure they were there, and they could just sit in the back of a limo or something. Well, they always kept themselves separate from... The music industry, in a way, because they they always remained based in Sheffield, and so I, I think they're always quite defiant in that way, and that, that they wanted to do things their way, and then they ended up having their own recording studio in the city centre for for quite a few years in the late eighties, early nineties. In fact, early nineties, I remember going because the, the building where the, the the recording studio was, there's some other recording studios in there, and then there was a, a, some studios that were owned by the local council, Red Tape Studios. And when I was a student, I went to some training sessions there. I can't remember what they were for now, but it, it was one of these things. It went on after hours, sort of, you know, till sort of like seven, eight o'clock in the evening, and so we couldn't leave via the main front doors. So they they said, "Oh, you're going to have to leave via the fire escape onto the uh, you know the upper pavement level." So we, we were all trooping through these corridors, and we see Axis Studios, uh, which is the, the one that was owned by the guys from Comsat Angels. And I, I didn't know at this point that the Human League had a studio in there. But anyway, so we're all you know, being shown, you know, we've got to go for this, this, this door, down, yeah, that door down there, fire escape door at the end, okay. So there's probably about 15 of us, you know, sort of 17, 16, 17 years old, all just like, you know, doing what 16, 17 year olds do, chatting and messing about and things. And we, we all fall through this uh, fire escape door out onto the pavement. And I go sh- crashing straight into the backside of some fella who's stood, his, his car's parked on the pavement outside the, the fire escape door. I mean, who would do that? The bonnet's up. He's got his head stuck in, in the bonnet and his backside stuck in the air. And I went crashing straight into him. I was like, oh, oh, sorry, mate, sorry, mate. Turn around, it's like, oh, it's okay. It's Phil Elkins. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to fix his car. So, you know, you think he could fo- afford a mechanic. Can't afford a driver, can't afford a mechanic. Yeah. But that incident gave him the title of this album. That's how they, they got the name Crash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, retrospectively, if you had a time machine. <laughs> Something that I think is really good about this article, not, not focusing on the Human League, but the actual article itself and the way it's written is Chris Heath is, is the author of this one. And I sort of think from my limited exposure to Smash Hits that he's like the premier writer. Maybe that's not true, but I've always assumed that that's the case. 
he does a fantastic job through his use of language in this article, giving you a sense of the atmosphere in the room during this interview and the, the interaction between the three bandmates. You know, as he's writing things, he doesn't just say the words that they, they mention. He says, like, announces Philip, snarls Susan. Um, they're mindless, grunts Philip. No, scream Susan. Like, he's so descriptive with his words that it really does give you a sense that these three it's it's so chaotic talking to the three of them because they're just attacking each other as they're doing the interview and he really gets that across really well i think yeah i think we've mentioned that about chris Heath before that his his articles in particular are very good at putting you in the room where the interview is happening and uh, and really getting a, a flavor of the conversation but also kind of the emotional atmosphere you know that's that's happening yeah definitely it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really well-written piece, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Something that really made me chuckle was um, where where it's talking about what Philip likes to do. It says he, you know, he prefers to stay at home in the house he shares with Joanne, tinkering with his massive collection of video equipment, watching the Human League's favourite TV programmes, Dallas, EastEnders and Sherlock Holmes at the moment, taking his motorbike out for a ride. He can't drive a car, although obviously he could a bit later on because Cy bumped into him. Yeah. And staring at the useless Sinclair C5 pedal-assisted vehicle that Joanne bought him for Christmas. Do you, do you know what a Sinclair C5 is? I had to go look it up. No, you've seen, <laughs> seen one now, though, yeah? Yeah, yeah. The Sinclair C5, a whole new way to get about. A safe, reliable, pollution-free electric vehicle which can be driven on the road by anyone, 14 and over. A traffic-compatible mode of transport that will carry you up to 20 miles on one battery, giving a 1,000 miles for the cost of a gallon of petrol, safely and reliably at 15 miles an hour. So, yeah, basically, it's kind of like a cycle-type... Well, it was, it was like a very miniature car, almost like a toy car <laughs> that, uh, for some reason, was kind of invented by a guy called Clive Sinclair in the kind of mid-'80s. And I think people thought it was going to be the solution to traffic problems, but obviously it wasn't. They were crazy. <laughs> They'd like <just> these <laughs> tiny little things that went along on. They were three wheeled, weren't they? Si, I think. Was it two wheels at the back, one at the front? Uh, I, I can't remember. I mean, it just looks like a sidecar on its own. It's just a, yeah, right. yeah, that's exactly it's it. It's broken yeah. free. Yeah. It's like, whoa, <laughs> where's that going? It's not the thing that Dave is driving in Never Let Me Down Again, is no, it? No, it's smaller than that. Okay, okay. It is it is more like a sidecar. It's barely wider than a body, a human oh, wow. body. And it's, it's narrow. And yeah, I thought this was never going to be <laughs> widely accepted as a more modern form of transportation. They're, no, 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 no. Yeah, you can't imagine it replacing the uh, DeLorean in Back to the Future. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no. It says, I, I went out on it three or four times at four in the morning so no one would see me, he sighs. This lady asked me if I was an invalid. Then I busted it one day driving into the living room. <laughs> the back wheel got caught in the door. Now it's joined the rest of the junk in what Philip calls a pigsty. So who cleans up? The last hoovering, he says proudly, was done by me. And then that leads to more of an argument again with Joanne. who says it's it's actually her mum that gives a proper clean to the place. I love that image, though, of Phil Oakey at four in the morning driving around Sheffield in a little Sinclair C5. Yep. Oh, I'd love to have seen that. <laughs> so do you feel you've uh, you've kind of got this out of your system now, Sarah? Oh, me? Oh. Yeah, with, with, with Human League. and. Oh. Well, it's very, very comforting to know that I'm in good company. 
that, that you both agreed with my assessment of this album and that they kind of lost their way at this point. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy to, to hear someone else's opinion on this because all I ever hear from him is, oh, how can you not like this? It's so great. Uh, yeah. Well, I know why now. <laughs> I'm not the only one. You've got the upper hand in the house now. You can say, well, <laughs> yep. giddy carousel guys agree with me. <laughs> That's right. Not that our opinion counts for anything at all, but it does in our house. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, God bless you. Skipping on a few pages, we land at Katrina and the Waves with Sylvia Patterson, joining them on the road in L.A., man. We have a very fat, ugly kind of following. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's an unusual piece i think katrina and the waves have been hard on tour after the success of walking on sunshine the year before playing anywhere everywhere and anywhere that'll have them but they've been away from the uk market for quite a while and the single that well i don't know how many singles they released but the next single that got in the charts was a year later and it, it didn't do very well and there's a little bit of a discussion about that in, in the book. Um, in the book? In the magazine. That's because I've got a book here. Uh, so Sylvia kind of thinks that Katrina might be a, a keen UK chart watcher. So I went and dug out at Sylvia's book, I'm Not With The Band, The Writer's Life Lost In Music. And sure enough, there's a little section here, a few words on the trip to LA. It was the first time that Sylvia had been Los Angeles. And it says, uh, the irrepressible Katrina, it turned out, was a keen UK chart watcher after being unexpectedly huge momentarily in Britain with the trumpeting whistler walking on sunshine. What else is in the charts right now, she wondered. Is it still barking dogs and puppets and football teams and granddads and three-year-olds? It's a funny old chart you've got there. <laughs> um, so that's, that's a, a quote from the piece. But then uh, Sylvia goes on to explore a little bit about uh, the UK music scene, uh, or certainly the charts in 1986. Uh, she writes, She knew Smash It's surging success that year was made all the more satisfying in puzzling pop times. After the classic early 80s pop boom, which gave us Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Culture Club, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Wham! and all those faces we associate today with the Band-Aid single in 1984, 1986 was a transitional period dominated by novelty pop in the likes of yodeling choir boy Alad Jones, the frothing effigies of TV's spitting image, and bespectacled sitcom chambermaid Sue Pollard, also the host of It's a Royal Knockout. Mere months on from the Live Aid concert in 1985, well, shouty rock buffoons, the alarm, were on the first Smash It's cover of 1986. Oh, no. And a pop year year muddled on through the dubious thrills of cover stars Nick Kamen, Bono and Mayor Brennan, woefully windswept duet featuring the voice of Clanad, and an indie fright rock coup in glum-faced Glaswegian feedback peddlers, the Jesus and Mary chain, heralded by the cover line, Loud, spotty, and weird, and still no big wigs interfered. So it feels like at Smash It's that they felt like they were getting away with stuff in what was not a great pop year. That even they were finding it baffling. I think if you look at some of the cover stars from 1986, they're just like, who are we going to put on the front? I mean, I don't know if you know the Human League are are the best cover stars for for this issue of the Meg. But she, she goes on to talk about Christy Berg. She says, when forced to interview Christy Bleh on the occasion of his hideously humongous hit single, The Lady in Red, brackets, 
the worst song ever written. He droned on and on about his marvellous yacht and his dear friend, Princess Diana, and so, in cahoots with the cackling art department, conspired to a crafty wheeze. We'd let him waffle on in print and incrementally reduce the typeface as he carried on, his dolorous, dribbling, (laughs) soon bleeding, unintelligibly off the bottom of the page. And still no big wigs interfered. <laughs> so they, they knew the score. They knew where things were at with uh, Smash Hits in, uh, in 1986. Uh, yeah, but there are some photos of uh, Sylvia in the sea. Uh, what does it say? Something like, a Smash Hits reporter interviewing the waves. Ha ha. And that is Sylvia indeed getting wet and running in and out of the water in LA, man, as she calls it. I, I just found it a, a little bit dull. I thought Sylvia was uh, was trying hard, and the only bit where I thought it was it was kind of funny and, and interesting was where they were talking about uh, meeting other pop stars. And there's a great little story about Lamal with his uh, avocado. <laughs> uh, she says because uh, they've been kind of touring a lot and on the road and, and bumping into other pop stars. She said, "Oh, we've we've met Heart, not very famous American group." Joe Cocker, quite famous old rockster, he was brilliant. Oh, and Lamal, he was thoroughly boring. Oh, Katrina, he was all right, retorts Alex. No, he wasn't. He kept complaining about his avocado over lunch when we were in Italy. The waiter couldn't understand him, so he made this other guy ask him to please explain the situation with my avocado. What a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) So I like those kind of little details. um, And that tour bus was quite amazing as well. There's a photo of the the legends of rock on their tour bus. And you've got like, I think it's Elvis. Is that Jimi Hendrix in the middle, I think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, John Lennon and Buddy Holly. A bit like kind of the Mount Rushmore thing, but it's kind of they're all a bit wrong and, you know, not not very accurately painted. So that was a lot of fun. But... um, yeah, overall, I, I think, again, a little bit like Killing Joke, but for different reasons. I, I, you know, perhaps Katrina and the Waves aren't really the best kind of Smash It's band at, at this time, you know. Maybe a little bit too earnest and a little bit too grown up. Again, were they were they big in America? Do they do much? Just the Walk one on song. Sunshine, I guess. Yeah, yeah, which I loved. I, I absolutely loved that song, and the video is so fun. And, yeah, I, I still like that song. Um I did not know Sun Street. I uh, never heard it before, but um, it's kind of harmless and I don't know, <laughs> but very, very sanitized. And she had, in the video, her teeth were also whiter than white. Her teeth were gleaming <laughs> at one point. That just made me laugh. But yeah, I would agree that this, this interview is not um, earth shattering in any way. <laughs> it wasn't anything spectacular out of it. It, it was fine. It was, it was very... Very mild, really much like their music, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I should point out they bring up 6 Sputnik in this interview, and also they bring up 6 Sputnik when talking to the Human League. I forgot to mention it. But evidently the UK was obsessed with 6 Sputnik. Yeah, there's, uh, it's very heavy on 6 Sputnik. They probably should have put 6 Sputnik on the cover of this issue, I'm thinking. I know. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Sold a few more issues. Uh, yeah. So what? Uh, on the next page, uh, Phil Fearon meets uh, Chris Heath again. He's, he's a busy fella in this issue. Is our Chris. Phil's got a new single out, I Can Prove It, which has got a pretty horrible sleeve, which he talks about. Um, he's had his photograph taken, leering at a pair of female legs for the single sleeve. Hmm. He says a little, a little embarrassed. I'll have to be honest about that. 
It's never been Galaxy's style to show legs or boobs or anything, but the record company wanted me to change style slightly, to look slick, Miami Vice, very, very cool. It does great slightly, but he sighs. That's show business. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, fair dues. But one interesting thing about um, Phil Fira that I'd, I'd never realised before, and I, I had to go online and check, and it is true. He talks about uh, almost being in the Sex Pistols, which is, you know, quite uh, quite bizarre. He says, uh, me and Glenn Matlock, the Sex Pistols' original bassist, who was replaced by Sid Vicious, went to primary school together and met up every now and again. He came round my house and we bashed away together. And he invited me down to his group's rehearsal room in Chelsea because they needed a keyboard player. They played a bit and said, what do you think? Do you want to join? I said, uh, let me think about it. It wasn't my style. I mean, that would have been a very different band with the Sex Pistols <laughs> with oh my Phil Beeran on keyboards. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he knows exactly what a punk is as well, though, because he says um, he's, he's talking about previous uh, fashions. You know, he talks about borrowing his brother's girlfriend's flares and getting laughed at, but he says, at least I was never a punk. Uh, he winces, horrified by the idea. I'd never be a punk, spitting at each other, teapots for handbags. Was that a thing in the punk days? <laughs> teapots I for handbags? I was puzzled by that too. I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe I missed something there, but he says the whole thing was about being bad and rotten and smelly and just didn't appeal to me. I thought it was so generous of his manager to buy him a car. <laughs> Yeah. He sent me out on a holiday and insisted that I buy a really flash car. I bought myself a battered old Triumph two years ago, but he said it's about time I started acting like a star. And so he bought me an E-Type Jaguar, charging it to my account, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a guy. <laughs> the thing I learned from this article was, I well, I'd never heard of Galaxy. I saw they were a number eight album in mm -hmm. the UK. They never made the top 200 here in, in the US, so I'd never heard of them. But I did learn about Grotesqueware. I didn't know what that was. So I Googled that. And um, having watched the video for this song and, and that brief exposure to Phil, can't really picture him wearing that style of clothing. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take a look at the singles reviews, uh, reviewed by Simon Mills, who did the Killing Joke feature earlier on in the mag. Uh, he nominates Cameo's Word Up as his single of the fortnight. And that is, he's not really too complimentary about the rest of the stuff that's in there. Uh, Trouble Funk, uh, The Communards, Don't Leave Me This Way, Human League, Human, uh, OMD, Banana Rama, Genesis, Killing Joke, Rod Stewart, who seems to be keen on but doesn't like that song, Talking Heads. Uh, the Stranglers, Nice and Nice, uh, Prince, Girls and Boys, and Curious to Kill the Cat, uh, and Misfit Who He Says are very promising. Um, it's an odd bunch of reviews. Uh, I don't necessarily like sort of the, the tone that he takes mm. with, with some of them. Uh, it seems to be uh, a little bit sexist and uh, homophobic <laughs> and a little bit racist in places as well. But yeah, just, just a little feeling that I'm getting there. So I'm not going to dwell too long on that. I mean, any of these singles that, that you would have bought at the time or that, that you liked or, or disliked even? Um, Gavin, I mean, I'm guessing that, you know, this sort of thing you might not have listened to so much back then. No, no, there's not an awful lot here. I mean, I, I, the Communards Don't Leave Me This Way is obviously a great cover version. I think it gets the single of the fortnight right. Cameo's Word Up is just brilliant. But yeah, there's a lot of pretty ploddy tunes in here. I really don't like that Rod Stewart song at all. I think that's awful. And the, I don't mind a bit of OMD, but this OMD song is... Oh, 
horrible. <laughs> it's just really like <laughs> dull and insipid, and the video is equally dull and insipid. So uh, yeah, not not a prime slice of OMD um, synth pop fun for sure. Sarah, anything there that you would have rushed out and bought, or anything you really disagree with? Well, yeah, I can understand why he was kind of not excited about these singles because a lot of them are kind of like, eh, that I I listened to them in preparation and there were only a few that, that really stood out to me. Didn't know a lot of them. Of course, I'll, I'll mention it just briefly and I'm, then I'll let Brian go on more about it. But the Communards is a, is a favorite in our house, the, the, the whole album and, you know, everything that they've done. But this song in particular, of course, Don't Leave Me This Way. Mm. It's, a, it's a favorite here. We, we love that one. Well, you'll find us belting it out in uh, our pub downstairs or who who knows where. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that Rod Stewart song, but boy, I don't like what he says about that. He thinks that Rod Stewart is infinitely more talented than David Bowie, uh, <laughs> Phil Collins, Elton <laughs> John, and Mick Jagger. I thought, oh, uh, that's, you know, hmm. and then he claims that... Uh, Love Touch is vintage rod. Uh, yeah. So mm. I said, okay, never mind then. I'm, I'm going to disagree with all of the things that you're saying here. <laughs> yeah, talking about that Rod Stewart one as well, again, in terms of bad videos, mm. I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw it. Uh-huh. Perv's Ahoy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, oh, there's a kind of a, a girl that's probably half his age that he's mm. kind of sleezing around, and it's it's really quite uncomfortable watching at times. Really and there's a bit where the pants... Yep, and he's like he's he's kind of pulling his trousers up, like, and you're like a split second away from seeing things that you really don't want to be seeing. <laughs> oh, Stuart's rod, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Yeah, Maggie may, but I wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. Thank you. Anything there that you really enjoyed, Brian, or any any anything you take exception to in the in the reviews? Oh, I definitely take exception to what he says about the communards, which I have in my top five singles of the entire decade. I, I think that song is amazing. I remember yeah. the first time I ever heard it. I remember the night I saw the video late at night on USA Today's Night Flight TV show. I was obsessed with it. I bought that album on cassette twice because I wore it out. I've had it on vinyl and I have it on CD. Communards can do no wrong in my opinion. And that is one of the best songs ever released. So he's wrong there. That should have been single to Fortnite. I like I like cameo as well, but hmm. Jimmy Somerville, you know, hot off of Bronsky beat, coming out with a brand new group, and uh, it's just an incredible song. The other thing I wanted to mention was OMD. I take a lot of flack on our podcast because I don't like OMD, and no one can understand why. And truth be told, I don't really understand why. Well, I think I do now. Uh, but you know, I listen to Erasure and Petra Boys and Depeche Mode, and I never listened to OMD. But I like this song. I played this one and I was like, oh my God, I actually enjoy this song. I wrote, I realized I actually like this song. I usually don't like OMD, mainly because it turns out of the vocals. I don't like Andy McCluskey, I guess, but it turns out I do like Paul Humphreys. So to me, this was probably my favorite song that I've ever heard by OMD. Okay. I'd say there's better better things by OMD than this in my in my personal opinion. Oh, I'm sure, like I'm sure stuff, everybody know. in the world disagrees yeah. with me and agrees yeah, well, with you. No, fair enough. Um, <laughs> I tried to get into because of the fact that so many people yell at me, I tried to get into some of their later stuff, um, like the English Electric, which actually is a pretty good record. Um 
very craft work influenced when you listen to it. But I just, I just don't like that one guy's voice. I don't know what it is, <laughs> mm. but I like that song. Anything else? I think the, uh, yeah, that Genesis one is, it's kind of like a Phil Collins solo song really, isn't it? It's, you know, yeah. it's, it's mm-hmm. in that kind of style, very adult and uh, like the kind of stuff Cy was ranting about earlier, that <laughs> right. real kind of adult mm-hmm. pop thing. I actually did agree with his review on this one, on uh, on the Genesis. I was like, yeah, <laughs> this is a, a slow moany type. <laughs> <laughs> slow moany type, yeah. I actually do like the verses of that song. It's I was trying to come up with a mashup. I like the verses of the Genesis song fine, and... I like the chorus on the Bananarama song, but the verses are terrible. So if they mashed a version of a song together with those verses from Genesis and the chorus of Bananarama, I'd give it two thumbs up. Genanarama. There you go. <laughs> that could work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he's very harsh on Trouble Funk as well. I like that Trouble Funk tune, and uh, he just says it's a rather plodding pedestrian effort. I liked but, it. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was yeah, fun, funky was, was and good. fun. And mm. and for us being so close to Washington D.C., I'd never heard of that group before. Never heard that song before. Mm. It's nice. There's a little picture of Simon Mills at the top, and he's. I'm not sure. Is he wearing? A, is that a coat or a shirt? What? Or is it a piece of plastic? I don't know what he's wearing. <laughs> I don't know. Though. It's really weird. I don't know, but it's got the collar up for sure. Yep. Because that's very very fashionable back then. <laughs> when when you look at what he's wearing, you have to question many of his, his decisions, <laughs> don't you? So uh... exactly. <laughs> Turning the page, and we get to uh, the, the band that's been running like letters through a, a stick of Blackpool rock, uh, Zig Zig Sputnik, but under the secret name of Sci-Fi Sex Stars, playing a secret gig at the Camden Palace in London. Uh, Thursday nights at the Camden Palace usually consist of a disco and a little-known group, but tonight it's the impromptu appearance of Zig Zig Sputnik, thinly disguised as the Sci-Fi Sex Stars. Not a very well-kept secret, as it turns out, as lots of people have found out through the grapevine, and the surprise was even mentioned in a London newspaper. But there are still a few for whom the Sputnik's appearance is a complete and utter shock. Those who are in the know were probably looking forward to the less-than-sellout tour that the group cancelled, saying that they didn't want to play the same show every night, and spouting off about how different they are from other rock and roll groups. So they're all expecting some pretty amazing stage antics tonight. After a warm-up set by a troop of pervacious dancers, <laughs> followed by a very long wait whilst the place is filled with dry ice, some classical music booms out over the PA and the Sputnik's troop on stage. The first shock is that Martin Degville isn't wearing the famous fright mask, but is swanking around in a yellow rubber suit, under which he later confides he's not wearing any items of underwear. <laughs> in rubber? <laughs> yeah. Shock number two, he has a feathered duster sticking out of his chest. Shock number three, he hasn't got V much stage presence at all. He just toys suggestively with the microphone stand, does a few pelvic thrusts and says, how are you doing? After every song. <laughs> in fact, the biggest shock is that the whole performance isn't shocking in the least. Their rather short 45 minutes set includes the two hit singles, which admittedly do sound rather good. Much leg wagging and dry ice and lots of big audio dynamite type voiceovers. The best one being from Simon Bates, the Radio 1 DJ who smashed up their record on the air. But overall, for a group who have achieved fame with their outrageous image, tonight was a bit of a letdown. No sign at all of the interacting with live TV or the other stuff they always go on about. And once the visual novelty of realising just what a stay they look has worn off, they're depressingly like any other rock group. 
So the hits aren't impressed. And it's a, a mixed response from the punters that they speak to have been at the, um, at the show as well. I don't know if any of you would like to share any of those comments with us. Well, let me say this is, this is actually the reason why I have this magazine, because Ian is my cousin. Uh-huh. And so he went to London, and while he was there, he went to this Six Six Button concert because he loved that band. So he sent me this magazine along with a copy of their album and said, here, this is for you. Um, I was never super close with them, but um, we did. The times that we got together, we would talk about pop music like incessantly because it was pretty much all we either of us cared about. He was older than I was. So I was always very excited because my cousin Ian was in this magazine and I'd listened to Six Six Sputnik that summer. I don't know if Sarah remembers this, but that summer after high school, we were at the same party a pool party at someone's house and they were playing volleyball and swimming in the pool. And I forced everybody to listen to six, six Sputnik. And as soon as I left to get a drink or something, it was shut off. And my tape was, I didn't find that tape. <laughs> so somebody must've thrown it far, far into the distance to avoid listening to the, the sci-fi sex. Stars. It wasn't me, but I know. I, <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. So this, so yeah, so this is actually why I have this magazine. So he was at law school. He was, yeah. It's 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 the strangest thing. He he graduated and got his whatever you do to become a lawyer, but he just never became one. I'm I'm not sure why. <laughs> did all that work and then <laughs> yeah. he became a sci-fi sex star. He did. <laughs> yeah, the six six Sputnik sent him off the rails, <laughs> led him astray. He was on such a good course in life until he saw this concert. Yeah, uh, well, he seemed to enjoy it. So fair enough if it changed his life. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so he's holding evidently a concert T-shirt that says "Rambo Child Love Missile F One Eleven," which is is one of their two big singles. That's the only song that anyone here in the U.S. knows. And if someone here in the U.S. knows them, it's because that song appeared in Ferris Bueller. Oh, they they okay, never right. were big or were in our magazines or on our radio here at the time. I, th- I thought they were a really exciting band, you know, sort of after Frankie goes to Hollywood's initial phase of, you know, relaxing two tribes and, and stuff. And then they'd kind of gone off the boil a little bit and they it felt like they were kind of yesterday's thing. And I thought Zig Zig Sputnik kind of captured a lot of that excitement mm-hmm. just for a very, very short time. It didn't last as long as Frankie's did, but um, Love Missile and 21st Century Boy were, were great, but their moment in the sun was a brief one indeed. I really love Miam here, if that's how you pronounce it. Miam, Miam, who's 23. has got a very interesting look going on. Says, uh, they're so much more colourful than any other band around. The best thing about them is they're so 1986. They're not some bunch of has-beens. And then afterwards says it was the ultimate experience. They have everything, the look, the energy, the colour. And I just think, you know, if... Um, if any members of the Sci-Fi Sex Stars or Zig Zig Sputnik got injured during a concert and they needed a substitute member, I think uh, <laughs> they've got the perfect sub just to come running on the stage there. You know, he looks like he's just ready to become the front man, the drummer, whatever. He does. He's, he's got the look, he's got the makeup. It's, uh, yeah, looking good. <laughs> Our friend John has a, a podcast called The Hustle and he just this week interviewed Tony James. He was telling some some interesting stories. I don't want to steal things and, and ruin John's podcast, but he, he did say one thing I do want to tell you just because it's so funny is that they got an 808 drum machine and they started working on the songs. He comes in and they said, hey, we have these two songs. And he said, the reason all the songs sound exactly the same is because they just learned how to make the machine make sounds. They didn't learn how to change the tempo. We never changed it from that. And he, he said, so that's why everything is that same tempo. And he said... 
I think it was like She's My Man is actually Teenage Thunder just played in reverse. We They recorded one song and they just flipped it. So there's a lot of... <laughs> A lot of neat little tidbits of information about Six Six Sputnik in that episode. It's cracking me up. Oh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> well, Joanna and Susie, who are both 17, their comments after the show, uh, <laughs> Joanna says, I got fed up waiting for them to come on. First, the whole thing looked brilliant, but then it really dragged on. Martin Dagville certainly looks better with the mask. <laughs> <laughs> dragged on for a whole 45 minutes. You know, that really isn't yeah. very long. And then Susie says, uh, they were a bit boring, weren't they? They didn't move around much, and the links between the songs were pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit, bit of a mixed response to uh, sci-fi sex stars there. I would think a mixed response is probably the best that Six Six Sputnik could hope for, actually. <laughs> I think so. I think so. So that just about brings us to the end of this issue of Smash It's But before we put it down and, and file it away. Well, I'll be filing mine away. Uh, there's a post of Spandau Ballet on the back. Brian, obviously this is missing from your issue of the magazine. It is. But I can see that Sarah's got it there <laughs> in digital form. So it's, um, I, I guess, a composite photo of verse bands all doing various silly poses. Well, all doing various silly poses, apart from Tony Hadley, who's in the middle looking a bit quizzical about it all. So I just can't figure out what's going on. Gary Kemp's kicking into the air. Martin Kemp's sort of, I don't know, trying to do some rock pose. And the other two, Steve Norman and Keeble. John Keeble, was it? John Keeble, that's it. That's the fellas. They're, they're kind of jumping up in, in the background. And I don't know what's going on there. So I, I posted this on, on Twitter to see if anybody could uh, shed some light on what's going on, or at least you know, <laughs> share their thoughts on what they thought was going on. Richard Drew said it's Spanau Ballet lessons. <laughs> ah, <nice>. uh, <laughs> uh, Paul Margak says, uh, treating through the barricades as seriously as it deserved, because <laughs> the Spans are definitely not being serious on this photo. Uh, Richard, uh, another Richard says, the 1980s, that's what's going on there. Sniff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Molly Miss Skelly said, Gary kicking towards Tony. Need I say more? Mm. And then uh, Craig Austin said, stand still if you're voting Tory. <laughs> I think he's referring to uh, Tony Hadley oh, there. Oh, boy. Sonia responded to that with, kick your left foot when you act like one, which is uh, Gary Kemp. So a little bit of politics for you. And uh, Jason Finch said, um, Steve Norman is taking a slash in Tony's direction. Understandably peed off about the singer's new barnet. <laughs> it is... Uh, Tony is sporting a, a rather severe mullet there. <laughs> <laughs> it is odd. I don't know why they would... I suppose it's just to kind of make it look a bit livelier, but it's, it just asks more questions than answers, really, doesn't it? I don't know. Yeah, because the Spandau Ballet never struck me as a band that had fun. No, so. <laughs> and if they're all about having fun, why is Tony Adley looking so glum and miserable there? It looks like a supply teacher that's been, you know... These naughty kids are messing around and he's like trying to exert his control. It might be those pants and his hair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> making him so depressed. <laughs> uh, so with that crazy collage of uh, Spandau Ballet, we do indeed reach the end of this issue of Smash It. So Eddie... Final thoughts. I mean, Brian, you know, this is an issue that, that you've grown up with. It's been in your life a long time. What's, what's it been like going back to it? I and mean, any sort of like Proustian rushes or anything like that? It's been a lot of fun. It's also been a little crazy in that there were things that 
it was like I was reading them for the, for the first time. Like somehow I've had this magazine for, you know, however many years. I can't do the math off the top of my head. 40 years, but I somehow never saw this here before. So that was fun. And um, like like we said earlier, it was just a real treat to get to talk about the Human League crash since Sarah said that I would never get to do it on my own podcast. <laughs> and Sarah, what, what about you? I mean, you you smash it a lot for your research on, on permanent records. So what's it like actually you know, getting stuck into a full issue of it rather than just extracting little bits of information? Well, it was wonderful because I usually find myself when I'm doing research wanting to read the entire issue that I'm looking at, you know, I've, I'm looking for one review or one article or something and I'm looking through the pages and I say, Oh, I would like to know more about that. Or, Oh, that looks good. And I really get sidetracked. So it was really nice to have an excuse to just look at one whole issue from cover to cover, even including the ads, which are, you know, sometimes also really interesting. So this was a, a real treat and I'm, I'm very thankful that you let us come on and talk to you about it. You're very welcome. It's very nice having you along. You're our first American guests on the show as well. Oh, we hope we did a good job then. Oh, wow. Representing you the did. entire country here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, you're boy. representing a lot of people. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, it was a great pleasure to get to be on here and, and talk with you guys because I've enjoyed all of your episodes. I've listened to them all. And this is one of my very favorite podcasts. So it was a real treat to oh, get to be on here. It's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Sai, do you feel like you've got something off your chest? Oh, I've only just started. We've only just begun on this. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very much how I remember 1986. Mm-hmm. It really is. So whether there's some sort of you know, childhood trauma that's kind of fixed in my system or something like that from this period, I don't know. But yeah, this year, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it all just seems so vivid as well. So yeah. We've unlocked a, uh, a an interesting box here. What about you, Kath? I, I think for me, I'd kind of forgotten that, you know, I was saying earlier on about those kind of more cartoony bands like Zig Zig and, and Zodiac. And I think maybe that was pointing a way to a possible new kind of pop future that didn't develop, you know, and it just all became more kind of serious and corporate and stuff. But actually, at that point, I think there was still a little bit of a fork in the road and it could have gone down into like this big kind of strange, quite eccentric, um, larger-than-life pop stuff. But um, common sense prevailed, I guess. But <laughs> I'd have enjoyed that more, I think, than, you know, than bands like Cutting Crew and, and, and stuff like that, you know, where it was all a bit more, uh, you know. I like the excitement. And, you know, for me, like Zig Zig Sputnik, they kind of embodied that kind of thing. Pop was fun and technicolour and... I know it was limited in a way, but it was, it was exciting, I think. And I know, there was again, there was a lot of hype and all that, but I'd rather have that. Yeah, but I think Zig Zig Sputnik was kind of the last gasp of punk and new wave, I think. Mm. And what was winning out were the serious bands, the musos and things like that. And it's, it's similar to what happened in the mid-70s, in that you look at the charts from 75, 76, and there's a lot of stodgy rock and there's a lot of professional musicians and then you know it took punk to kind of come along and and kick all that into the margins and give us that new lease of life but that that lease of life it's a life cycle Mm. it's come to an end and i think it had come to an end really the year before and the cycle has gone on to the professional musicians again and they're starting to know what what the record companies are knowing what the tricks of the trade are and Mm. things like that and the 
they're playing a very corporate game and it just made it, I don't know, just a little bit sterile, I think. But yeah, it would have been better if there'd been more Zig Zig Sputniks in the world. For sure. And we know Brian's cousin would have agreed with that, right? He definitely would have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Brian and Sarah, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll find links to the issues of Smash Hits that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists, so you can enjoy your ride on the carousel to its fullest. And of course, you can check out our previous episodes, playlists and scans. Our back issues, if you will, while you're there. And if you want to support us by buying us a coffee, then you know what to do. Just go to coffee.com slash giddypoppod. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com slash giddypop pod and uh, if you feel moved enough to leave us a review then please do so and uh, come and say hello to us at giddypop pod on twitter facebook and instagram and we'll say hello back so once more thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time on the giddy carousel of pop bye bye bye